There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Yes, yes. Welcome into what I'm going to describe as a special edition of the Tim McKernan Show in the 120-ish interviews that we have done so far in the history of this podcast. This is the first one that I did that I did not expect to air for the public. Um, Over the last... Oh, uh, I guess, uh, Gangster Pete, month and a week, I think. We, our first one was with Red Kurtz, gentleman's name. That's right. On uh, December 16th, or December 6th, excuse me. And um, I have interviewed, I think at this point, about 12 people. I think that's I think that's the number. And the way it all came to fruition was I was talking about interviewing my uh, father uh, on the show. And I was hesitant to do so. And a number of people contacted me and said, you know, you really ought to do it. Even if you're worried you guys are going to start weeping and you're not really comfortable with that or you don't want to put him through it or put yourself through it, whatever the case might be, you owe it to yourself to get his story, not necessarily for yourself, but for your uh, your kid and your brother's kids and your other brother's kid and um, perhaps we'll have more kids and and get that done. And so what the byproduct of that was, was a discussion in which, uh, on questions from the audience, I said, you know what, I'm going to do it because I, I need to think of my son and my brother's daughters and my brother's son. And I would love to have, uh, the stories of my grandparents and I would love to be able to get into my car and listen to their stories and hear their voices. And so at that moment it became clear, it was no longer, I'm not sure I should do it. It became hundred percent. I'm going to do it. And then what that led to was um, an evolution of, of thought in that exact same discussion that uh, I was open to interviewing other people's family members for the exact same purpose, for their families to hear their stories, parents, grandparents, whatever the case might be. And it was just it just it was it was just something that just kind of um, emerged in thought. And a few people took me up on it. A few people then posted how good the experience was for their father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, and then their emotional reaction to hearing their stories, most of which, when you think about it, we don't really know our parents or our grandparents' stories. We know the the Cliff Notes version. But these interviews, um, all of them with the parents or grandparents have gone at least an hour. I would say 90% of them have gone an hour and 10 minutes minimum. And some of them have gone longer than that. Um, And so you're getting details that oftentimes what the person will say is, I don't know if my kids know this, or I don't know if I've ever said this before. And so it's turned into something that it didn't even, it wasn't even on the periphery of um, our minds two months ago, and now it's become something that I am doing 
at least at least three of these a week, if not more. I don't have a name for it. I think we might have a name, but I, I until we kind of go through a variety of different processes, um, I don't want to say what the name is. It's neither here nor there. If you are interested in it, you can just email me, tmckernan at insidestl.com. And um, it's, you know, I'll go to bed and I'll say to my wife, I'll go, I got three more of these scheduled today. It's just, it's, it's, and it's great. It's exciting because I love doing them. Uh, Pete and I are, are fresh off of uh, doing one right now. And I've got to tell you, it's inevitably going to happen. We gave Pete trouble when he would get emotional during the Craig Berube, uh, Doug Armstrong, uh, Cam Jansen, Reed Lowe interviews. Were there any others that Kelly guy, Chase? Kelly Chase. Kelly Chase would be an understandable here, here, here. one. Understandable one. And I'm I'm telling you, it's 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 happening and it's going to happen where I'm going to get emotional too, which is not but people are pouring out their hearts because they're thinking of their kids, their grandkids hearing this. Um and I love doing it because, you know, with with TMA and with this podcast, it's been a, it's been a thrill to be able to do something that you love and you know it means a lot to people from an entertainment standpoint. What we do entertains them and sometimes serious subjects resonate with them and maybe make them think about a different perspective that one of the hosts or producers has. But with what we're doing with this, this is something that these uh, families will have for as long as they have the audio file. And that means they will have the voice of their loved one or loved ones, as the case might be, saved forever. And so ideally, my son's son or my son's daughter will hear my dad's voice telling his story. And that's a, that's, that's a powerful thing. That's listen, the morning after is, and has been, you know, I can't imagine having more fun at a job, but we've been incredibly lucky. Um, but I also recognize that, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's a circus and I love being part of the circus. There's no question about it, but this is, this is fulfilling in that I know it means something to people. It's uh, something that it's if you don't do it, you could regret it. And once you do do it, you're thro- so thrilled you have it. The reaction I get from the people who are the ones who email me to set these up for their family members after they listen is one of easily the top three most rewarding things I've experienced in 20 years in broadcasting. Now, 22 years, I guess. Um you know, the pulling to the side of the road and getting emotional, the hearing the the story for the first time, the 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 have knowing that your father, your mother, your grandfather, your grandmother, their voice will always be there. Or what me and my brothers and sister did for my parents for Christmas, which was um, record a, a, an hour conversation amongst the four of us talking about our parents and saying the things that are often said at eulogies, but of course, by that time, it's too late. And so we wanted to make sure we did it. And so that's how this has all evolved. It was an accident, but it is one of the most beautiful accidents I've experienced. And, um, and it's a thrill to be able to do it. Uh, so if you are interested in doing it, email me at tmckernan at insidestl.com. Assuming that this continues, this is something we would set up a website for, and um, and then you wouldn't have to worry about emailing me, and you could see how it all would work. But in the meantime, I'm happy to explain it via email. With regard to our specific setup, uh, people come into the studio, and I uh, 
you know, have, there's a, there's a very brief, I, I don't want to say questionnaire because people go, Oh God, how much do I have to fill out? It's, I mean, I'm looking at it right now, name, birthday, grade school, high school, college, spouse, children, um, favorite moments, what has changed over the course of your life. I mean, very broad questions and anything else they would want to add. And then it just becomes a conversation. And uh, for those of you listening to this, I guess, obviously you've enjoyed at least some of the conversations we've had on on the podcast since starting on October 1st, 2017. And it's the same thing. The difference is, is whereas when I was interviewing Gary Pinkle in our very first interview, for example, and take your pick of whoever else throughout, 98% I know the story before I ask the questions. I just want to hear their perspective on the story. Um, and, and more often than not, they get comfortable and they maybe add something to the story that, that, that our audience and myself have never heard before. In these cases, I'm meeting people most of the time for the first time. And I just say, hey, we're just going to have a conversation. And oftentimes they will say, I'm not that interesting. And then an hour and a half later, <laughs> I think they realize that it doesn't matter who you are or what your story is. Everybody has one. That's just the reality. Uh, and and to be able to record that for your kids, your grandkids, and they always will have that on an MP3 file, which then emails, um, you know, it's, in, it's invaluable. And so it truly is, the word I keep using is honor. It's an honor to be able to, to do this. Um, and the agreement that we have, it kind of goes with, in my mind, it goes without saying, is that this is not something that we're going to like, oh yeah, listen to this funny story from this person's life and we'll play it on the radio show or on the podcast. It's an understanding that these are private. Um, but a few times here recently, um, if it's not violating the omerta of the privacy, I will um, share something on either the radio show, not a clip without permission, but just like a broad portion of a story with our audience. Because some people have said, oh, I'd love to hear these. And I said, I understand you would love to hear these, but the premise when people come in and pour their hearts out about very private matters is that it is going to remain just that. It might frustrate someone that they can't hear it, but it's, it's private. It's, these are private citizens, and these are, these are, they're told, and I'm going to honor that these are going to remain private. If they want to share it, that's their choice. So I told a story about a gentleman by the name of Carlton Norton who uh, came into the studio last week and uh, his grandson booked the interview, and uh, and we had our conversation. His wife Marilyn came in as well, and um, you know I knew some broad broad points, but it wasn't until we got into the conversation, as is the case with all of these, that you start realizing the intricacies. And as I was getting ready to go to bed that night. I wanted to share just on our fan page, the TMA fan page on Facebook, which has, uh, I don't know, what does it have, Pete, now like 7,000 some odd members, 8,000 members? Just over 7,000. Thank you. Um, the story, his story, which, by the way, in, in, in kind of recapping it, I actually left some things out, some sub substantial things, by the way, but about his upbringing, about his ability as a golfer, about how his ability as a golfer um, was interrupted, so to speak, probably not the right word, by World War II, his experiences in World War II, uh, coming home, his experiences in the Korean War, um, the career path he chose, what he decided to do with Marilyn with regard to their family, and the manner with which 
he lives his life. And as I was recapping this, and I didn't, I didn't really expect it to get the reaction it did, honestly. And then I guess with the benefit of hindsight, it's, it's a mistake on my part because of, it, it should get a huge reaction. It, 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 I knew it, it would. You knew it would? Yeah. yeah. Just, once again, I, I'm just wrong all of the time. <laughs> you're the answer key. If you say something's going to happen, you're right. I am wrong just consistently. It's amazing. And I'm just recapping the story and people are like, oh my gosh. And I thought to myself, well, here's what happened actually. Derek Gould of the Post-Dispatch comes in and we record a podcast. Um, and within a matter of hours, the Cardinals make the trade with Tampa. And so much of what Derek and I talked about was rendered obsolete. And that happens. I, you know, it's, it's never fun, but it, it happens and you can't get mad at it. It's, it's the risk of something that's not live. It's just kind of the nature of the beast, especially when it's not an evergreen discussion. So, you know, I can get mad at it, but you know, I mean, that's, that's the game. So, you know, you can't get mad at the game if you choose to play it. So, um, so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you know, call an audible. And I was thinking, okay, who could I have in? What would I, and I thought people were asking about hearing Carlton Norton's story. And I thought, okay, you know, I was thinking about the interview and I thought, I don't think he said anything that he would be uncomfortable with discussing publicly, but it's not, that's not for me to determine. So I emailed his grandson who set it up. And said, would you ask your grandfather and your grandmother if they'd be comfortable? Because the reaction to the interview has been, um, you know, I, I guess, as Pete said, with, you know, it's not surprising when you, when you, when you, if you're about to listen to this, you're, you hear the story and you go, oh my gosh, it's, it's kind of Forrest Gumpian in a way. Um, so he checks with his grandfather and his grandfather says he would be honored if uh, people got to hear his story and that we chose to, uh, to make it, to make it public. Um, and, uh, and that's again, because there's so many elements of American history that are, you know, I mean, you're talking about the depression, you're talking about world war two, uh, you're talking about Pearl Harbor, you're talking about, you know, coming face to face with, um, you know, uh, what he thought was German submarine, um, you're talking about, uh, finding out when world war two on the European front came to an end and where he was and the stories there. You're talking about the Korean war, his time in golf, which crosses paths with, uh, with an American legend from the 20th century. Um, and then his career path and what he did with his family, which it's like the first chapter is a lot of American history. And then the second chapter, you go, Oh my God, this amazing man did this. And you just, you know, I come out of these things and I go, I just, I'm just not really worthy. <laughs> I mean, take, take your pick of whatever element, but you know, you take a step back and you go, well, if somebody, a grandson or daughter or a son or daughter wants to have their mother, father, grand, grandmother, grandfather's story told, they obviously have a great deal of admiration for that person. So, you know, it's, it, there's a reason. Um, but there's also the memorialization in that person's voice that they want to make sure that story is told and will always be there. And so Carlton's story, um, you know, is is more than uh, what most of these are, which are family stories, which is why this one I thought would be good for everybody to hear and also to get an idea of what it is that we do in these. But the stories, the stories, it's not a story. The stories, I think, will you'll go, oh, my gosh, what a life. And this is a man who uh, has been in St. Louis for decades, has had an impact on St. Louis. And um, and as it turns out, a number of people uh, knew, not as a public figure, but from what he did with his career. His name is Carlton Norton. His wife's name is Marilyn. 
They have been married 63 years. He was born on July 29th, 1926. Ladies and gentlemen, from the HomeLoanExpert.com studios, presented by Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies, it is my honor to give you Carlton E. Norton and his wife, Marilyn, here on The Tim McKernan Show. Carlton, welcome. Thank you. I, I Should I call you Reverend? No. I Carl. should not. Carl. 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 All right. I was going to go Carlton or Reverend, well, and now it's been, it's been reduced to Carl. My mother never liked Carl. Uh, she did not. But, but I have I a son do. named Jameson, and I wonder if he's going to keep that. You know what I mean? He'd probably I, called nicknamed Jamie or something. Some, I know, exactly. Yeah. And I really want it to be yeah. Jameson, but I guess it's not my call. Yeah. You prefer Carl. My mother was against the Nazis, <laughs> and she was afraid Carl was a little too German. But. <laughs> now, I, now I understand. There's, there's more to it than just not liking yeah. the sound. Uh, you were born. July 29th, 1926. And I was born in a Salvation Army home. Now, what does that mean? Well, I had a single mother. And in 26, that was uh, a no-no, as it still ought to be. But um, her her family could not accept it in a small town. Uh, They had And this is in New York? This this was up in New York, a small town in New York. And... um, uh, her father, uh, my mother's mother died in childbirth. So her father raised her until she was 13 and then he remarried. And it was the stepmother that really, uh, insisted, uh, that I not be brought into the family, but that I didn't find out for a number of years. But anyway, the result was they sent her into the city of Buffalo and she went to the Salvation Army home where I was born. And, uh, she, was 19. She didn't have a lot of training for anything. She grew up on a farm. So the Salvation Army let her stay there and work as a, like a practical nurse, mm-hmm. uh, helping take care of the other kids. And I stayed there with her for four years. And then the place burnt down and I didn't do it. You were not responsible. No, I, the statute of limitations no. has expired. <laughs> I have to tell everybody, but <laughs> I did not do it. Well, at any rate, uh, then I was sent to a, a Methodist children's home, and it was outside the city. And uh, it was, to me, it was awful because uh, it was a change from what I've been used to. My mother had great difficulty getting out to it because buses didn't run that far, and she had to walk at least a mile or two to, from where the bus ended to even come to see me. And uh, I was just awfully uh, unhappy there, and I I really began to be not well, sick. I kind of so like developed physically. some malnutrition. You know, really? Malnutrition, and I just wasn't eating right and so forth. Well, at any rate, uh, after a year, she put me in with an organization called the Children's Aid Society. And the Children's Aid Society uh, kind of worked with foster parents. And my mother would not allow me to be adopted. She wanted to uh, still have some control over my life, but uh, I could be in foster care. So I, then I went and lived in 11 homes. 11 yeah. homes. Uh, but anyway, at 17, I had an opportunity to get out of it and uh, join the Navy. If you don't mind, I just want to go back to, I, I can't imagine, you know, so many people who I have conversations with, they speak of their, their childhood and glowing, yeah. you know, yeah, we played ball and it was yeah. fun and my, my well, mom would stay at home and my dad, you know, brought home the money, but we were, 
you're, you're bouncing around. I can't home. say mine was horrible. It it uh, there were just some uh, things about it. Uh, I never knew where I was. I never knew where I had any permanence. Were you always in the same my like, region? Hat was, my hat was kind of at the door. Right. That's the way I felt. Yeah. And uh, were all uh, these people, families kind? People to you? were nice to me. Okay, good. Uh, generally, I had one family that was not, but um, really, I can't claim that I had mistreatment. And I did have some very wonderful things happen. I, I was in, in a wonderful church, a good old evangelical church, and the people there were just great. I felt at home in the place. I place first place where I really felt a home. And uh, I, I enjoyed going there just for that reason. People would welcome me and as a kid and uh, so forth. So the first family I lived with, I was with for five years. And then they had two children and I had to leave because they didn't have room mm. uh, for me. Was that that's tough? When I Do you went remember that being tough? I mean, after you're kind of getting yeah. comfortable five years? Yeah. I, w- I was comfortable and I felt good ab- about the situation. And I would get to visit my mother uh, about once a month. And they would pin a, uh, a little note on me, uh, let him off at Chippewa and Main Street. I'd get on the streetcar and I'd ride for an hour downtown. I'd fall asleep, five years old. Oh, uh, I could do this by myself. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it was teaching me some early independence. Uh, but anyway, I, I'd get to see my mother and I'd, I'd go down. We'd meet in a drugstore. Uh, she'd buy me a soda and a sandwich or something mm-hmm. and we'd visit and uh, then i would get on the streetcar she'd turn my note over tell me where to get off and then i'd walk about a mile to the house Gosh, wow i learned to do that pretty early i would say so yeah. five years old yeah. now you're doing you're experiencing growing up and bouncing around bouncing around yeah I did. during the depression yeah which i would imagine only complicates things did it, that factor in the bouncing around it, it did um well, uh, I'll, I'll give you one little experience. Uh, I was sent down to the corner store and given a 50-cent piece. <laughs> and as kids will do, I started playing. I started rolling it down the sidewalk and running after it and picking it up. And I'd roll it again, and all of a sudden it rolled off into the grass somewhere, and I couldn't find it. And the family was devastated. I mean, 50 cents was a lot of money. In those days, I could go down and get some milk and uh, right. bread and some other things. But uh, uh, 50 cents, there, the whole family <coughs> went down, the man and his wife and a uh, little girl, and uh, <coughs> couldn't find it. Wow. So uh, that was an experience, and that taught me about the Depression. When I was 12, I took uh, got a job as a caddy at a country club, and... Uh, <coughs> I, excuse me, I got a, um, pardon me. No, no problem. That's what it's there for. I had a bicycle and I could ride about eight miles out to this country club. And that was the the best thing that had happened to me because by that time I had malnutrition. My teeth were bad. I had constantly going to the dentist and they were uh, at a children's hospital. Uh, they had uh, young dentists who were learning, and so they would take out a filling and put a new one in, 
and then I go back two weeks later and take that filling out and put another one in. They're practicing. <laughs> and when the Children's Aid Society found out about it, they really uh, raised Cain, and finally I began to get my teeth taken care of properly. <laughs> but uh, that was one of the things that happened, and uh, I, I had bad teeth, malnutrition. So when I went to the uh, country club and started to caddy, it was the best thing that ever happened in my life. Why is that? Uh, it was wonderful because uh, I got out in the fresh air. I had to carry a bag. First time I carried one, I, I couldn't. I, I went 12 holes. And I had I couldn't carry the bag anymore. And the fellow I was caddying for said, "Do I have to carry you in too, son?" <laughs> I said, "I don't know, sir, but I just I was tired." And uh, so I stayed there at the club until I was 17. I became an A caddy and I, I, I learned to play golf. And and, and, and and played very well. I mean, there's, I there's, there's learning to play well, golf, I, and then there's playing at the level that you— I, I had a natural swing, and uh, I didn't— uh, Did didn't you start playing right away I didn't 12? have to work very—well, uh, we had to wait one year. Okay. Our rule was, uh, if you're caddying, you cannot swing a club uh, for the first year, um, even uh, privately. And then the caddy master would give us lessons— and we would, uh, while we were waiting time uh, uh, for people to come out, we would uh, get together and shoot uh, balls into a basket. Mm -hmm. They had a little uh, five-hole short course in front of the club. We sometimes get out there on Mondays, and uh, we learned to play golf. He was a he was a good golfer himself. Sometimes he would uh, beat the pro, and he'd only played a few times oh, a year. Oh, really? He was, a natural he was a as well. Golfer. But, I mean, you, but, got, you got to be a one handicap by the time you're 17. 17, yeah, I had a one handicap. I, I, mean, I, was, I was really thinking about professional golf. Were you really? Yeah. Uh, but the war changed everything. And, sure. Uh, so, anyway, I, uh, when I was 17, I uh, wasn't too happy with the family I was living with. I wasn't happy with my education. I had uh, the family I was living with wanted me to become a court stenographer, and I said, "Why? Uh, well, you'll uh, be able to wear a suit, and um, you'll look good, and you'll make some money." And, oh. <laughs> so in high school, I'm taking business machines, typewriter, um, uh, office machinery things, and I was the only boy in the class. And I hated it mm. <laughs> because it was, you would think maybe it would be a good thing, but uh, I didn't like it because uh, the teacher wanted to get the boy out of the way, and now we can teach the class, you know, kind of thing. Uh, that was my feeling. And uh, but anyway, I thought I'll never use this stuff. What? Why, why am I doing this? Finally, I got my mother to agree that um, who still had control over me. Um, that I could uh, join the Navy. I, I started with the Army, and she said, no, I'm not going to sign. And I said, why not? She said, I want you back. I said, well, what about the Navy? Yes, you can join the Navy, because mm. you'll come back. Mm. Well, <laughs> who knew? Yeah. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, I joined the Navy. And um, and when did you join the Navy? When? Yeah. I joined in 1944 in January. Okay. And... Um, I was in until the end of 1946, first time. I uh, went to New York for, uh, well, I went to Sampson Naval Base for my uh, uh, boot camp. And um, uh, sailors don't learn to march, but they learn other things. <laughs> and uh, the, the Navy is uh, much more technical than the Army, although the Army is pretty good now with the new technology. But uh, everything in the Navy is 
very technical. You're running ships, planes, and on all those things. And um, so <clears throat> they really <clears throat> they spend more time working on the uh, technical part of mm-hmm. your life. I'll give you a good example. Uh, we had we had to learn to swim. Well, I could swim a little, but not very well. So we had to swim two lengths of this Olympic-sized pool and then climb a rope ladder. Fine. We, uh, that in order to pass the course. We passed it, and then I was th- thinking to myself, now let's see, I get out in the middle of the ocean, and the ship's going down. I can swim two lengths <laughs> of a pool and climb a rope ladder if there is one. <laughs> when are you ever going to use this? <laughs> yeah. Well, you never know. But, I mean, that was kind of basic, you know. And then I went to uh, New York, and they sent me out to uh, Bermuda uh, on a ship called the USS Altair. And the Altair was a uh, destroyer tender, and its job was to service new destroyers coming out of New London, Connecticut. They would come down to Bermuda and to Cuba and do their um, uh, sea trials. And if anything went wrong, they could pull up alongside our ship and we could repair it. So uh, we were kind of like a floating machine shop. Okay, all right. An old rust bucket ship. Uh, We traveled up and down the Atlantic a number of times. And um, the Atlantic, uh, uh, off the Atlantic coast, there were, was well known there were 30 submarines, German, not far off the coast. Sometimes they could be seen offshore. Really? From the shore. Uh, so uh, we kept wondering, uh, you know, we had one little five inch gun and a couple of whack whacks. <laughs> and uh, we thought if a, if a submarine comes along, uh, what? defense do we have so the captain made us all feel good and said you know this is boys this is such an old rust bucket they're not going to waste a torpedo on us (laughs) (laughs) that's how he got you through it (laughs) so that made us all feel good Uh, but anyway uh, so uh, I really spent the war in the Atlantic Mm -hmm. and didn't get into uh, any battles there were no battles never never any battles no I didn't but you, you would see the submarine? I mean, would you guys actually uh, Well, see? we had one submarine come up alongside uh, one night while I was on uh, uh, night uh, watch duty. And I saw this submarine come up, and I sent a message to the uh, uh, ship's control. And they said uh, I could see the thing come up, and it was rising up out of the water. And uh, I thought it was a... I mean, I didn't know you couldn't see anything. You just see the thing coming up out of the water. And I thought it was uh, German, and it turned out to be an American sub. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the ship knew it. But anyway, I saw this, and I'll tell you, I just about... Uh, yeah, had yeah, an incident. You know. <laughs> yeah. I had an incident as well. Called we'll call. dysentery. And I wouldn't blame it. Well, exactly. <laughs> Whatever. That's what we'll call it. I mean, I can't imagine. If yeah. you see that thing, it's just like yeah. eerie, just to think was, it coming out of the water, and there was, you are, and you think it's a German it, sub? It was, I did. Ooh. I really did. Oh, my goodness. But it goodness. wasn't, and it, it turned out okay. Well, then we went to Cuba, and we spent um, three months in Guantanamo. Uh, still servicing ships, and then we were sent uh, through the uh, Panama Canal. And while we were in the canal, uh, waiting in um, the Gaton Lake, uh, uh, we were uh, tied up to a British ship, also waiting to go through. And um, all of a sudden, all the whistles in the harbor went off, 100 ships, uh, ship whistles going off, people shouting, the war in Europe ended. 
Oh, no way. While we were uh, in Panama. And then we were sent out to um, Pearl Harbor. And I spent another year out there. And so right when the war so ends, you guys when, go When from... the war ended in Europe, mm -hmm. uh, we were still going to, uh, to... We were heading west. We didn't for know the, where yeah, we were going. Pacific. Uh, we thought maybe uh, uh, out to service the ships further out. Mm -hmm. But we ended up uh, staying in... Uh, um, in uh, uh, Pearl Harbor. So I, I wanted to ask you two things. I mean, someone who was born in, in 26, you'll have a memory of, of the day Pearl Harbor was was hit, even though you were it. not. I it, do it, remember it. We, sure. Uh, the family I was living with had two sons. Uh, that was this, At that time, that was the Schindelbeck family. Older German. or younger than you? Uh, well, the boys were, one, one boy was a year older, Another boy was a year younger, and I was fit in between because the family had lost a girl to a pneumonia and scarlet fever, and um, I was kind of brought into the family to help the mother kind of kind of get over the grief. Uh, for three years, she went to bed and wouldn't get out, uh. and then finally um, someone came along and I just told her to get up and get going. And then I moved in. So uh, uh, at any rate, the, the three boys and the two parents were in the front seat and were riding out in the country. Mr. Schindelbeck uh, loved to take rides in the country. And uh, he did have a nice car by that time. He worked for the railroad as a ro uh, car dispatcher. And uh, so we're riding in the country, and all of a sudden we hear this, the Pearl Harbor's been attacked, and uh, war is going to be declared. And we all sitting there and listening to this, and we thought, gee, that's wonderful. Where is Pearl Harbor? <laughs> we had no idea. And uh, But I remember saying stupidly, I hope, we're, I hope I'm, uh, live long enough to be in it. Why did I want to do that? I mean, well. Why do you think you said that? But I was 14. Right, right, yeah, right. You know, and so uh, at any rate, that that was the thought, but uh, so, so you get three, you actually go to it. Not only are you in the I war, did. but you go to Pearl Harbor. What do you see? I mean, they, they talk about you can go there now, and you can still well, see. Yeah, you can just see the. Uh, now they have the memorial. It right. wasn't in there then, but we could see the oils coming right. up from the uh, uh, the battleship. So it had only been a couple of years since it happened. By the time you get there, right? Well, I was there in, uh, let's see, 40, we got there in 46. Okay. Let's see, late 45. Okay. And then I was there until the end of 46. Uh, so, um, so what did you see? When you, uh, it when was you... pretty well uh, cleaned up. Uh, there were still some sh uh, shattered hangars and things on uh, Hickam Field. And we were stationed out in the harbor. Uh, we could take liberty into a town. We'd have to get on a boat to do that and go to a... Uh, Pearl City, and then get on a bus to ride over to Honolulu. Okay. And uh, but uh, that was also kind of interesting because I had never uh, known much about Hawaii or that it even was going to be a state. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, so it was. All these things were learning experiences for me. And I'll tell you one thing right now that uh, that I believe my life has been shaped for preparation, to prepare me for something I didn't know what what it was going to be. But the experiences that I had, I think prepared me uh, 
to be a better pastor than I might have been had I not been through some of the experiences I had been through. And um, when I talk about my pastorate, I can explain sure, that yeah, a yeah. better. But uh, You're talking about your time in the service? Yes. You're talking about your So your let me go upbringing. back to one incident before that. Uh, I was living with this Schindelbeck family. Uh, I was confirmed at uh, Trinity Church in Buffalo. And uh, uh, at my confirmation, I, I was really taken with the pastor. He was a marvelous man. We had 39 kids in the class. And uh, I was just, he, he kind of became a father figure for me. And this was at this church that I loved. I really enjoyed going there. And I decided uh, at my confirmation, the thing I wanted to be was a minister because I wanted to be like him. Hmm. So in that moment, you decided. In that moment, wow. I, I decided I wanted to become a minister. So I went home and <laughs> I told the family, I said, well, I've decided what I'm going to be in life. I finally decided what I want to be. What is that? I decided I'm going to become a minister. You? <laughs> you're going to be a minister? <laughs> really? Uh, and then um, grandmother in the family who lived in the house as well uh, said, Carlton, uh, you know, when I go to church and I shake hands with the minister, it's like shaking hands with God and kind of, who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. Well, that set me back um, uh, 14 years. That comment there. That, well, I mean, I really felt unworthy uh, to do it. I mean, that was uh, that was a sincere she feeling on sincere, her part yeah, yeah. and the family's part. The minister was very important. And uh, more so, I think, than they are today. But <laughs> at any rate, uh, that was it. So the family wanted me to go into this um, business of um, uh, court stenography. Right. <clears throat> so I um, took all these courses, went in the Navy. Uh, I worked as a shiphand for a while, and then I, uh, a deckhand, and then I uh, went into the galley and learned how to cook uh, for um, uh, about 800 men on our ship and uh, so that was training good training uh, then I came out of the Navy and uh, in four, at the end of 46 and I wanted to get back to school because I learned what I had really missed I was stupid uh, dumb <laughs> uh, there were a lot of things I just didn't know and so I, I went back to my high school <coughs> Grover Cleveland High School at the time and I sat with kids who were four years younger so I could wow. finish my high school. Uh, then Did a I lot of guys who served do that, or was that No, rare? no, no, not the guys who served with. This was the kids. No, I know. That's what I'm saying. But yeah. the guys who served go back to get the uh, they Well, do that? Is that some, common? some of them did. Well, I mean, a lot of youngsters went in, didn't finish school. Right. And I just felt it was important. And uh, so I, I did that, and I went on to college. And uh, I had to work my way through. I had all kinds of jobs. I continued to caddy when I got back home. Yeah. While I was home on leave one time um, in uh, 1945, uh, <coughs> I got a call from the club. And uh, they said, would you like to caddy uh, today while you're home? I said, no, I don't think so. I'm home on leave. Well, we've got a special uh, person for you. I was an A number one caddy. Mm -hmm. uh, and they said, we've got a special person coming. Uh, maybe you'd like to caddy for him. I said, who is it? He said, Bob Hope. 
Oh, my I gosh. Said, really? <laughs> I said, I'll be out. <laughs> so I, I did caddy for Bob You Hope. caddied for Bob Hope. <coughs> what was he that played, like? He played 12 holes. I had to get downtown for uh, the show in the evening. But he played 12 holes, and he was one under par, never seen the course. And and Buffalo Country Club was a tough course. Uh-huh. But he was a good golfer. Oh, yeah. He played every day so. in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. He and Bing Crosby. Uh, the movies that they made had to make time for them uh, to, to get their golf, golf in. <laughs> <laughs> You're a golfer, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally okay. respect that schedule. Okay. We, like we that. have our priorities. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. you got to get that four and a half hours so, in. So, <laughs> at any rate, I went to college, and um, in my third year, the, the Korean War broke out. And I was called back in because I made another mistake of signing up in the inactive reserve. You'll never be called. You'll never hear from us, but you get out six weeks early. I'll take it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, so I got out six weeks early, and then in 51, I got called back into the Navy and served four years. That time, I went on an aircraft carrier, uh, a big one, and um, uh, we had 110 air- aircraft on it. At that time, they were still the propeller jobs. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, A4s and uh, the folded wings. They would unfold them and take off. The planes, when they would take off the front of the ship, did not have enough wind, so they would duck down, down and, and you'd then wait go, and wait. Oh, oh my goodness. And then they would come up. Oh. And uh, only one or once or twice did one actually end up in the water. But uh, at any rate, my carrier training was absolutely. Marvelous. I, I mean, I, I really feel, I have to say, I felt God was leading me in some ways that uh, I couldn't explain. But I, I got aboard this ship, and I went into the um, um, captain's office. Uh, and because I had shorthand and uh, typing training, mm-hmm. they put me in the captain's office. So I'm in the captain's office about two weeks and the lieutenant comes in and he says, anybody here know shorthand? And I'm looking up and down the guys, and I put my hand up. I, I know shorthand. Uh, fine, you're going to work for the captain for until we get a, a chief on board. And I worked for the captain for about uh, two months. And uh, <laughs> one of the uh, funny incidents working for the captain was uh, he called me when we were leaving uh, Brooklyn, New York called me and he said, now, Norton, I got word when we get down to Cuba, an admiral is coming aboard and we're going to have a ship's inspection. And I want this to be A1 perfect. I don't want a blemish. So you notify all the departments and let them know that we're going to have this and I'm expecting excellence. Okay. Yes, Mm -hmm. sir. It'll be dress whites because we're going to be on our way down to Cuba. So uh, we all got our uniforms done as well as we could. Because I worked for the captain, I could take mine down to the tailor shop and have them all pressed up <laughs> real nice, the best I could be. Got my pad and pencil the morning of the uh, uh, of the inspection, and we had uh, 4,500 men up on the deck, of the flight deck, all lined up, ready for the inspection. And uh, I follow the captain up, and he's a bandy little guy. He runs up the steps, and I'm trying to keep up with him. And when I hit the flight deck, I fell. 
on my face and landed oh, on no. the, one of the catch wires, which had grease oh, and stuff no. on it. So I had three stripes <laughs> of this stuff on me, and he looks at me. <laughs> he says, Shooksy said, he says, Norton, we're going anyway. <laughs> so now I'm walking along, and he's looking at the men and stops, and he says, Norton, put this man on report. Look at that. He's got a string hanging out of his pocket. We can't have that. <laughs> I walk up to the guy and say, okay, what's your name? And he looks at me and says, who the hell are you? <laughs> Ask me my, <laughs> my name. <laughs> but anyway, we, we had the inspection. After it was over, there were a few men who were given a, a captain's mast, and the captain uh, forgave them all but told them, the next inspection would not would not be forgiven. They would uh, lose something. So uh, I never heard another word about this. Fifty years later, my daughter uh, encourages me to go to a reunion of the ship down in Jacksonville, Florida, and my wife also. Tarawa. On the Tarawa, mm -hmm. that was the aircraft uh, carrier, and uh, fifty years later, so I go down and uh, join, and when I get there. There are six guys standing in the vestibule waiting for me to come in. Guys that I worked with. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but anyway, um, I was there. We had a great time at the uh, on Saturday night. This ran like from Thursday to Sunday. And uh, on Saturday night, uh, one of the men came to me and he said, uh, Norton, you're preaching tomorrow morning. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, when I do a sermon, I write one. It uh -huh. takes me uh, 15 hours uh, to put it together. And I said, I, no, I'm, I'm not. Pre yes, you are. You're the only preacher we've got. You're, you're doing the service tomorrow morning. I said, well, it takes me a lot. He says, you got from now until 830 tomorrow morning. <laughs> <laughs> I still so take <laughs> what I basically did then was <clears throat> I told some stories of things we had done. Uh, on the ship as I worked for the chaplain. So when I left the captain's office, I went into the chaplain's office. And um, I stayed there until I got out. Well, uh, one of the stories I told at that night was about falling on the deck and the stripes. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this story, I'm talking, three arms went up and guys said, Norton, we've been waiting for you for 50 years. We're getting you when this service is over. <laughs> so that was, that was funny. But anyway, going into the chaplain's office was a blessing because uh, I was given some responsibilities uh, working for the chaplain, I mean, we put services together, of course. He, he would lead the service. I did some singing. I would sing solos and lead singing and different things. And um, uh, But in addition, the chaplain was responsible for a number of other things. He was responsible for welfare and recreation aboard ship. And in welfare and recreation, we were responsible for the morale of the crew. And that meant we uh, put on a variety of different things. For example, we could put on dances, uh, both aboard ship and off the ship. Uh, those arrangements had to be made by the chaplain, meaning me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't the chaplain, uh, but I worked for him. Sure. And I had to do the, mm -hmm. the work. And uh, 
we would put beer parties uh, on uh, beer and steak on a beach if we couldn't get into a town for liberty and um, that sort of thing. Uh, that was what we did. And we also, um, uh, one time we went into Providence, Rhode Island uh, to buy some record players uh, for compartments. And we were getting ready to go to the med. And uh, I went into this shop and I said, we're looking for a 45 RPM little little box like thing and you get the small records yeah. and then we buy a bunch of records and we had ships welfare money and I said uh, so we'd like to get a couple of these um, uh, 45 rpm uh, players he said sir you wouldn't like those now no, no, yeah, I, I tell you you know we've got better equipment than that I said no that's what we're looking for uh, he said sir I, I said finally look we're looking for 45 of them well <laughs> yes, uh, yes sir uh, we, we have some very good ones <laughs> we wouldn't have been hiding in the back or something anyway and we bought a bunch of records and that was the kind of thing we did we put these things uh, in each compartment the men could play them uh, we didn't have uh, much of a ship's radio at the time uh, for getting on shore things, mm -hmm. we could get announcements over the ship's radio, but not uh, uh, music or anything like that. Uh, television was just kind of coming into its own, and uh, I ha happened to have an office with a porthole. And we had a, we had a television set in the library, which was where my office was, right behind the chaplain's office. And uh, I could take a long pole, stick it out the porthole, when we were close to shore, and put a hanger on it, and we would get uh, a picture. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> served as your antenna. <laughs> yeah, and of course in the library, then a bunch of guys would come and we could watch if we were close enough right. to uh, uh, some reception. Uh, we could watch maybe uh, baseball or a, a game or something, or listen to the news. Oh, how great! So is that, that was always kind of interesting. The most interesting part of that was uh, putting on the dances for. Uh, the men overseas so one of my jobs was to prepare for that uh, we would know what ports we were going to be in uh, unless uh, some uh, trouble broke out or mm -hmm. something we'd be sent somewhere quickly but uh, my job then was to write to a, a town we were going to be in uh, like Cannes France which was where we had the first dance uh, I would write to Cannes, France, to the International YWCA and the um, uh, uh, embassy. If there was an embassy in Paris and they'd have an office in Cannes, mm -hmm. we would write to them. And uh, we would order 300 girls, 300 girls through the YMC, uh, International YWCA. And uh, we were always successful. Uh, so the first dance we had was in Cannes, France, and it was in, we rented a, uh, a beautiful ballroom. Mm -hmm. But we had money because the way we got our money was everything that was bought aboard ship, hats, uniforms, uh, ice cream, uh, you know, whatever, uh, tailor shop, we always got 6% of whatever was spent. So we, we often had as much as twenty thirty thousand dollars uh -huh. to put on dances or the uh, to pay for the uh, beach parties, that sort of thing. So we, you know, we could hey, you could put on much, a nice little event. We could, huh? we could put on a nice <laughs> event, and uh, so we we did that, 
and we had some great dances. Just uh, really wonderful, and no, no nothing improper yeah. uh, ever happened. Uh, and the guys really appreciated it. We had a wonderful band aboard ship. They could play as well as Tommy Dorsey. And, oh, yeah. uh, some of these guys. It was it was really so your your memories of your time in in the Navy. They're all told with a with a with a smile. Yeah. yeah, I do say it with a smile because I was fortunate. I didn't I didn't uh, get into the battles. I'd lost some friends, uh, but uh, basically. It didn't. I wasn't hurt by the war, uh, and I was out. Uh, I was out on my own mm-hmm. uh, for the first time yeah. in my life, and the second time in the in the navy. And I began to see this uh, my time with the chaplain as being preparation again, preparing. I didn't know for what because the ministry had kind of gone out of my mind because of the com- uh, comment for grandma. Well, because yeah, I really, I still didn't feel like I had a call. To ministry, and uh, I didn't know what that was exactly, but I felt uh, somehow I should know that I, I'm convinced that this is what I have to do, and I didn't have that. But anyway, here I'm working with the chaplains. I'm learning uh, how they work with people. Uh, uh, the chaplain on uh, the sh- that I worked for on the ship was a full commander, which meant he had a lot of gold braid on his hat, and a lot of guys are afraid of gold braid. So they would come and talk to me first and say, well, you know, we got this problem and uh, my wife's at home and she's uh, sick and we need, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. Or my wife's having an affair mm. and, you know, I, I'd, I need to get home and straighten things, things out. So they would often talk to me first. And here I was kind of beginning to do that mm-hmm. yeah. and then pass it on to the chaplain. And um, uh, the other thing we did... Uh, in the chaplain's office. Uh, of course, we had Bible studies, and I was involved in those, and learning how to really read the Bible and how to do it. And uh, uh, we also uh, uh, sold tours when we got into into the Mediterranean. When we go over to the Med, we would be there for six months. And we would go to places like Cannes, Milan, mm-hmm. uh, Rome, um, uh, we could uh, we, uh, anyway. The the ship wasn't allowed to. Uh, uh, well, let me put it this way: the tour companies in Europe were not allowed to come aboard ship to sell their tours. So they had the chaplain's office do that. Yeah. So we would sell the tours, and um, we would uh, say we got into Cannes. We could sell a, a tour to Paris for four or five days. And at X amount of dollars, okay. we would take the money and then send it into the tour company, and then the chaplain and I would get a trip anywhere we wanted to go, uh, where the tours were. And uh, so we we did that. We would uh, put on these things each time, and uh, I got to meet some of the people in the tour company. Some were Italian, some French, mm-hmm. and uh, had dinners in some of their homes. And, uh, you know, gosh, I was getting an education yeah. and didn't even know it. Yeah. And so uh, uh, when I came home the second time, uh, my interest, by that time I was already 27, and uh, uh, my interest was back in the ministry. And I went to my pastor, uh, I had just turned 28, went to my home pastor who was still there, the guy that confirmed uh-huh. me, 
And I said, uh, Reverend Moulter, I've decided I want to become a minister and I need your help. And he said, you know, I've been waiting for you for 14 years to come back and tell me. Wow. How did he know? I don't know. But How anyway, powerful was that? I mean, in that, in that moment when he says that to you? That was powerful. That was I mean, powerful. that's your calling right yeah. there. That's the call you've been talking about, isn't it? Well, that was part of it. The chaplain actually was the one that kind of helped me. Uh, he asked me, he said one time, why haven't you uh, thought about and go, uh, going into the ministry? And why haven't you done it? And I said, well, I, chaplain, I really haven't felt a call. I, I, I don't know what that is for sure. I haven't, I haven't heard any big voices, uh, whatever. And I'm not sure that I'm fit for the ministry. He said, you know, uh, Carl, sometimes God is just patting you on the bottom and saying, keep going the direction you're going. Mm. Mm. That was powerful. Mm. Yeah, powerful. that also is powerful. So anyway, those things kind of led me into uh, doing that. And then I ended up going to seminary here in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. That's how I met my bride. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I'll get into that story here yeah. in a second. But anyway, uh, I came west then and i was going to go to bangor maine because they they worked with older students and i thought that that would work for me and when the pastor heard that he said you're not going to bangor you're going to eden where i graduated (laughs) he made the call and and you went to st louis that's right and then i had a good friend in buffalo who was also going to eden same time so we came together he just passed away in october this year uh so he was in his 90s as well Hope you're enjoying our conversation with Carlton Norton and his wife, Marilyn, here on the Tim McKernan Show. Carlton and Marilyn came in to the HomeLoanExpert.com studios. If you are going to be buying a home, make sure you go to the HomeLoanExpert.com. The rates are so low right now. You have to capitalize on it, whether it be for buying a home or you're going to refinance. This is the time to do it. And Ryan Kelly and the HomeLoanExpert.com team is the team to do it with. Go online at thehomeloanexpert.com. Ryan has been our studio sponsor since we started, and he is somebody I've known now for a decade, and I don't think twice about recommending to our audience, thehomeloanexpert.com. Our guest presenting sponsor is Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. Mark is someone I've gotten a chance to get to know here over the last couple of years, and just know that with with my personal experiences and really, candidly, uh, my uh personal failure on managing my money as well as I could have and should have in my 20s that I want to make sure I recommend to our audience, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever the case might be, you need someone. You need someone to lean on, and Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies is that person online at evergreenstl.com. Mark Hanna of Evergreen Wealth Strategies. If you follow up with him via evergreenstl.com, you're going to be happy you did, and you make that phone call after you go online at evergreenstl.com. You're going to feel better about the direction you are taking your personal or your family's finances. Mark Hanna, Evergreen Wealth Strategies. And finally, another person I can speak to with firsthand experience, James Carlton of the Carlton State Farm Insurance Agency, 314-961-4800. Or go online at carltoninsurance.net. After I got a chance to get to know James, uh, he was not my insurance agent, but I got to know him. And I went to his office and I met his staff and I thought to myself, I'm kind of doing my family a disservice by not switching to James Carlton. And so after I was making another change, I thought, you know what? Why don't I just do it? 
And I think I think the main reason why people don't make a change is they're comfortable with who they have because they probably haven't had to use them. They're just making that payment and it's just kind of, you know, it's taken out of your account and you, you move on. Um, and then, and then secondarily, you probably know the person. Usually it's not like somebody you, 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 you take is just like, oh, I heard this person's advertisement, so I'm going to call them. It's like a friend of a friend or a relative or whatever. And then you don't want to have that awkward conversation, which I get. But from my standpoint, your responsibility is to yourself and your family. And so I put my family in a better spot by making the switch to James Carlton. 314-961-4800 or online at carltoninsurance.net. If your insurance costs a leg and an arm, call James Carlton. State Farm. And now back to Carlton Norton and his wife, Marilyn, here on the Tim McKernan Show. So anyway, I uh, went to Eden and um, for three years and graduated. And my second year, I, uh, Marilyn and I were both working part-time in the YMCA and uh, doing a variety of things. She was working in a Girls program at the North Side Y on Grand Avenue, and I was working out in the county. And our, both our managers said to us, uh, there's going to be a program at the Chase Hotel. You go, you'll get a nice dinner, and uh, you'll uh, hear the program and um, uh, decide what you're going to do. So what it was what, uh, was a program trying to get us to go to uh, George Williams College up in Chicago, which trained uh, YMCA, professional YMCA workers. And I said, well, I don't, I don't want to be. <laughs> I think you were sitting there when I said that. I don't want to be. In, <laughs> I don't want to be a YMCA worker. I'm going to be a, a pastor. And she kind of had the same feeling that um, she had trained to be a teacher. I was at Harris Teachers College. And she was okay. in her fourth year? Yeah. yeah. She was already in her fourth year. I was in my second year in seminary. So uh, we uh, we met, and uh, I won't go through that meeting, but it was a wonderful meeting. She was, uh, she was the girl of my dreams. And up until that time, I had had very little interest Well, even if I had an interest, there wasn't anything I could do about it. I didn't have any money. I had to work every time for my meals, uh, the place where I was staying, all that. And uh, so when I met her, uh, everything just changed. And I just, um, I was swept off my feet. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I really was, and I still am. (laughs) (laughs) 62 years later. 62 years later. 62 years later. That... Still there. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. But anyway, next month. 63 next month. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's, that's right. In February. So um, how did you propose? Well, we were sitting on her front steps and she was she was taking a job for the summer uh, at the uh, at the um, well, YMCA Camp of the Rockies. Colorado. In Colorado, and she said, uh, "By the way, there's going to be—I think there's going to be about 500 uh, college boys working in that camp." That's I said, "Oh, oh. I said, it's uh, like you were negotiating very... <laughs> right there. That was a nice play." I, yeah, I, I had to nail her. I had to nail her down. <laughs> but uh, that did work, and uh, we. Um, uh, we decided we were going to. We decided then we'd get married, and then a few times we sat down and we talked about. Uh, our future life, what we might do, and uh, at, where we'd go. We didn't know where the church would take us. Right. But um, one of the things we did talk about, I said to her, uh, you know, Marilyn, uh, growing up as I did, 
I really felt some responsibility to all the people who had taken care of me, even though sometimes I wasn't too happy about it. But they did. They did take yeah. care of me. They got me through uh, my childhood, and I felt some responsibility. And I said, I would like, even if we have children, I would like to adopt at least one youngster. Wow. She said, I agree. That would be wonderful. Wow. So you so, wanted to pay that forward from your experience. Yeah. Yeah. That's well. That yeah. I felt like that was important. So anyway, we we got married in in February, and uh, she finished. She had finished school in January. Mine ended in June, and then we were sent to uh, back to New York, and uh, to two two small churches, and um, we together five years uh, in uh, first in New York, and then I mean first in in uh, Attica. Attica, New York, right. and then we went to Rochester to a big church. And it, when we were in Rochester, she said to me one day, you know, it's been five years now since we're married, we have no children, and maybe it's time to adopt. And we were in a good situation in Rochester, and so we put in for our, our first adoption. Uh, we had a social worker come out, we talked, it's gonna be two years kind of thing. Six months later, they called. They had a baby for us, little girl. We weren't prepared at all. <laughs> you have a child, at least you got nine months to yeah, think about exactly. it, right? Uh, we had nothing. And so I was uh, the minister of youth at the church I was in, big church, 3,000 members. And um, they put on a, a shower, baby shower for us. We ended up with all the things we needed, <laughs> <laughs> diapers and bu <laughs> buckets and all that stuff. <laughs> crib uh, and so anyway uh, we adopted the little girl and then uh, after one year when her adoption was final uh, we said you know if we're going to have another one I guess we better put in for it so we did we had the lady come out and she said well this time it's going to take two years and uh, that was like in September I think because that was around yep. Christmas birthday. That's her birthday. And in January, they called us and said, we got a little boy for you. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so we ended up with Jim. Jim is one of our adopted right. children. So we had two. Okay. Okay. Then we uh, moved out to St. Joseph, Missouri after we left Rochester. We were there three years. We were trying to get closer to my family. Okay. Yeah, we were trying to get a little closer, although uh, St. Joseph isn't too close. <laughs> right. But anyway, it's closer than Buffalo. <laughs> so I, uh, we moved to St. Joseph, and I went to uh, do some volunteer work at the um, uh, Buchanan County Welfare Board. It was kind of the thing I was interested in, one of them. And um, I saw that how awful they were treating the kids who were in foster care just awful i never wanted to do foster care marilyn and i kind of talked about that i didn't want to take a kid and then dump him uh, i thought if we're going to do this uh let's adopt them and we'll bring them up so we're in saint joseph and um we help form an organization of of uh, christians and jews who got together and we said we're going to adopt some of these children out of the uh, uh, Buchanan County Welfare uh, group. The first one down the pike came to us, seven-year-old boy. Now we had a five, six, and seven. Jim was five, Chris was six, mm -hmm. and Dan was seven. And um, he, he came to us having already lived in seven homes 
He was rejected twice uh, at, a, at an adoption hearing. The family changed their mind at the oh last minute. Oh, my gosh. And he was sitting there. Oh. And uh, anyway, um, we adopted him. And then we, uh, as soon as we got him, we were already in, in ready to make a move from St. Joseph. So we came to Chesterfield, where we spent 24 years then. Mm -hmm. But um, we were at St. John's Church in Chesterfield. Yeah, St. John's in uh, Chesterfield, where our, our kids all grew up. So uh, Dan had uh, a bag full of problems. A uh, nice kid in many ways, but he just had problems. And uh, he, part of it was he, he needed attention. And he, sometimes he would do strange things to get the attention. And like maybe drop a dish or It's called some, negative attention getting. Okay. Something where we had to do something right, right away to take care of it. And uh, so we, and we had him in counseling for a number of years and so forth. We did everything we could to help Dan. And um, uh, he's still uh, a young man who uh, has, I shouldn't say young man, 59. He's 59 and yeah. still dealing with his. And he's still, uh, never has recovered from uh, rejections and the kinds of things that had happened to him. Our family was, uh, the other kids uh, were some help to him and we, we did what we could for Dan, uh, but anyway. So then we moved to Chesterfield and uh, uh, about half the year into it, I had to take him back to uh, St. Joseph to adopt, for, to finish the adoption. Right. We were getting things ready for him to go and all of a sudden he acted up and just horrible things and everything else because he, believed in his heart that we we were taking him back to dump him uh, because said, of his experience said, Dan, we're not going to do that you're our son now we you know we've got the papers done and uh, you're our son you'll be with us and so that's been true until he was 17. so then we got to saint joseph and uh all of a sudden comes a young man whom we had helped in our first church in attica new york um, we took in some kids there temporarily to help them out. And this young man had a, a mother who was a prostitute and would invite men in every other night or so, strange men. And he got tired of it. He wanted to come and, and uh, uh, have us help him. And he stayed with us for a little while, uh, Dick. Dick Higgins. Dick Higgins. And uh, so suddenly Dick showed up at our doorstep. Well, we're in Chesterfield. In Chesterfield, right. yeah. And he had, uh, after some help from us, he had gone on to college and uh, became a social worker and ended up in our children's home out here in St. Louis. Oh, wow. And the first wow. thing he walks up, he says, I got a boy for you. I said, no, you don't. <laughs> we, our family's complete. We've got three. That'll do it. And he said, well, this boy isn't going to leave the home. He's, uh, he's at the children's home, and he'll stay there until he's 18. But... Uh, he needs a place where he can at least visit with a normal family. I said, our family's not normal. <laughs> you know, this may not be good. But anyway, we ended up uh, taking him as a visiting child for a year. At the age year. of 10. Hmm? He was 10 years old when 10. He so it was two years. And uh, in the middle of the second year, we were getting ready to go on vacation. Uh, well, it was a vacation and a visit to my mother who had cancer. 
and we were going to go out to see her and spend uh, uh, four weeks. And uh, right in the middle of our planning for all this, um, he comes to visit. The kids are all excited about this trip to California. And uh, I got a call from Dick Higgins, who said, uh, by the way, you know, Randy uh, is allowed a vacation. You have to take him for two weeks. I said, well, we're going to California. Uh, and we're going to be gone four weeks. He said, well, we have to have him back in two. I said, well, we're going to take him with us, and uh, if you need him, come out and get him, or we'll ship him back mm-hmm. somehow. But uh, we talked with the guy that ran the orphan's home, the children's home, and uh, he said, no, you keep him for four weeks. Well, at the end of that four weeks, he decided he wanted us to adopt him. So we adopted oh him. Oh, Now we had 9, 10, 11, and 12. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, We no sooner finished uh, that adoption, and Marilyn comes home one day, and she says, guess what? We're going to have a baby. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it was uh, kind of an interesting 15 years, <laughs> 15 years into our marriage, uh, we had already uh, taken care of uh, at least 10 other kids uh, various times and ways, and uh, our life was pretty busy. Uh, but it was it was a wonderful life in, in so many ways, too. I, it gave me a family. She gave me my first family. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, it gave me solidity, which I didn't have. Even in the Navy, I didn't have it. And uh, But to have a home and uh, a wife who cares about you and uh, a, a, a profession that also uh, gives a lot of care, not only to the pastors, but to many others as well. And it turned out to be a wonderful profession because we were able to do things we never thought we could do. Yeah. Preparation. Yeah, it goes back Not to the preparation. preparation H, but <laughs> preparation. <laughs> yeah, just to clarify. <laughs> the off yeah. chance anyone thought otherwise. One never knows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, what you, what you guys have done, what you have experienced is incredible. I don't know if you realize it, but I, I, it, we, we certainly think, I mean, the, yeah. these stories are, and your ability yeah. to recall them and rattle them off is also, well, quite, I, that'd be impressive if you were 30, much I'd less like 93. I'd like to tell you one more. I want to hear one more. I've got more for you. Okay. We were out in California visiting my mother, uh, and that's what had to be in 76, Okay. 75, I think. 75. 75. And um, we're visiting my mother. She was... Uh, ill. Oh, 76, maybe. And um, uh, Marilyn happened to look in a phone book. We were going to call one, one of my cousins or something that lived out there. Looked in this phone book and saw a bunch of Nortons. I never knew my family. My mother wouldn't talk about it. Uh, now I'm 50 years old, or 49 at that time. 49 years old, I didn't know any family other than my mother and a fellow named Frank Smith. So she looks in this book and sees all these names, and um, uh, we went back home and didn't think much about it. And then we went back the next year, because my mother was still uh, in cancer. And um, at that time, uh, it was just me, I think, went. And uh, I was visiting with Frank, her then husband. She married the year we got married and finally said to us now I can get married I said well, why didn't you get married before this uh, because I wanted to make sure you were taken care of oh. that was her goal 
and she waited until I was we were I was 32 when I got married. Marilyn was 23. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, uh, now uh, Frank Smith, who was a guy who started writing to me when I was in the service the first time. My mother had suggested that he write to me. She knew him. He uh, worked for Menlo Junior College out in California. And Frank uh, would write to me these beautiful letters, and but say nothing about family. It was just all great things about things that he had read, trips he had taken, things like this. So he would write to me, and I, we kept on doing that in college and then in, in the Navy again. Then I got to meet him. And so Frank and I are sitting at the kitchen table, and he gets uh, wound up one day, and he finally says, damn it all, Carlton, you're going to meet your family, and it's going to happen today. We're going to do it on the phone. We had eight. My mother had eight brothers and sisters, stepbrothers and sisters, and uh, that was the family that he wanted me to meet. So we got on the phone. We started calling. First, we called the oldest one, Warren. And uh, Warren, um, uh, this is Uncle Frank. Uh, Now, um, uh, I want to tell you, Lucille has a son. And uh, he's sitting here with me and wants to say hello to you. (laughs) (laughs) You're on, Carl. Yeah, you're on, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Warren says, uh, yes, I know about Carlton. Frank says, you do? Yes, uh, I do. Uh, He said, you know... uh, Lucille and I and uh, uh, Keith and Iola, yeah. uh, three, mm-hmm. uh, three of the uh, stepbrothers, all lived with my mother during the war. I didn't know that. She didn't tell me. She only talked about herself. Not that she was self-centered, but this was kind of a wall. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, he said, yes, you know, you would write letters to your mother. Um, Carlton Edward Norton, uh, New York, New York, APO, and uh, send them to Lucille. I would pick them up and put them in her drawer and never say anything to her because I felt like if she wanted me to know, she would tell me. Mm. That was me. I kept saying the same thing to myself. All those years, I kept saying, if my mother wants me to know about family, she will tell me someday. She will get around to doing this. She never did. So uh, we went on with the next two or three, and then we got down to the younger ones in the family who didn't know, and they were all shocked. Lucille has a baby? Not a baby anymore. (laughs) He's a full-grown man. Well, anyway, the result of that was my mother, when she found out, was angry at first, but then she said, you know, next year, uh, if I'm still alive, we're going to have a family reunion, the Norton reunion, uh, up in New York. And um, we want you to bring the family and come and meet them. And I did. And uh, we went up there and uh, we had five kids with us in the car. And all the way up, they kept saying, Dad's turning 50 and he's Mm -hmm. having a coming out party. (laughs) (laughs) And so anyway, we got up there and we met about 65 members of the Norton family. Oh, my gosh. In Catasarica, New York. Aunts and uncles, cousins, nephews—you know, just all these people were at this one farmhouse, and we drove up, and they're all standing on the lawn, and uh, so we went up and met them, and we stayed for two weeks, and uh, we got to know everybody quite well. What were those two weeks like? Oh, they were wonderful. 
they were just they were so accepting of me and i just felt so comfortable with all of them uh i kept saying to myself why is this taking so long yeah. well at the end of the reunion my mother passed away and we were still in, all in new york we had gone, she passed away while you're all in well we had gone to no, uh, the end of the reunion ended and we went to new york for three days okay that New was York when the city. blackout. City, the city. When the blackout happened. Oh, you really? You were there. And all the elevators stopped and all that. We <laughs> were on Long oh, Island. Oh my goodness! And uh, staying with Marilyn's cousin. And at any rate, uh, we then went back to Attica to pack, or to uh, uh, Canisterega to pack our bags and head back home because I had a preaching assignment. And uh, we got word that my mother had passed away in Boston, where she and Frank had gone to visit a friend, and then they were going to fly back to California, where they lived. Mm -hmm. So she passed away, and Frank was uh, uh, older and uh, beginning to lose his eyesight. And so I flew to Boston to help bring him back, and the casket was put on the plane with us, and uh, we, we stayed there until the service was over. When it was over, we went back to the house and we're sitting around a table, a group of us, and my one aunt, Kit, who just also just passed away this year, my one aunt, Kit, was the youngest uh, uh, in-law uh, aunt, and uh, she said, Carlton, you know, the day before you came uh, to visit us, uh, your mother uh, was up at the cemetery at her stepmother's grave, Mother Smith, they called her, she was up at Mother Smith's grave and crying. And I said, why was she crying? She, because she was saying, Mother, I'm sorry I broke my promise. I said, what, what, what was the promise? The promise was that you were never to be brought into this family. I said, what? What, what are you talking about? Yes, that was the rule. I was never to be brought into this family. And uh, I said, so for 50 years, my mother had to bear the guilt of a mistake that she made. And it wasn't just her mistake, I don't think. Uh, I have a reason to say that. But anyway, uh, I said she was made to feel guilty even at her mother's grave. This is it's ridiculous. And uh, in this day and age, mm -hmm. especially. Carl, you might want to make the connection between Frank Smith. Well, I'm going to next, yeah. So, <laughs> this Frank Smith, my mother's husband mm -hmm. now, married the same year we were married, came to visit us a number of times uh, in our home, wherever we were, in uh, St. Joseph, in Rochester, you know. And uh, uh, at, at that same time then... Um, when we were talking about uh, my mother not being allowed to bring me into this family, said, um, uh, by the way, you know, uh, uh, Frank is uh, Mother Smith's youngest brother. I said, what? So my mother married her school, uh, my father, my grandfather married a school teacher who was the brother, uh, the sister of this Frank Smith who was writing to me as early as 1944 and never mentioning family, oh never. They came to visit, never talked about family. They came to visit again, never talked about family. And uh, that's why Frank was so upset because he felt it was so unfair 
that we would be left out of this and really a wonderful family. Mm -hmm. The Nortons are just great people. Most of them, most of the uncles now are gone and aunts, uh, one left. But they're great people and they were very understanding of the situation. Uh, and they were a pretty well-educated family. They hit, uh, one of them, one of my uncles was a superintendent of schools. Another one was a colonel in the uh, army, but not only in the army, he was in the army intelligence. Wow. He was called away at times uh, to go someplace, meet somebody, and his wife wouldn't hear from him for a month or two. And the only way she knew whether he was still alive was she could call a number in Washington. And they would say, yes, we heard from your husband, he's uh, okay, and uh, call us back when you need to. Uh, that's the kind of... Wow. CIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, it's it's been a uh, an interesting life. Yeah, I would say so. We've had some experiences that have uh, uh, trained both of us. I want to get back to Maryland here in a minute, but it has trained both of us to be the kind of persons we are. Uh, I can't say that we had a lot to do with it, but a lot of people, other people, did all through our life, and our churches have been marvelous. To us, we still get letters from our first churches we ever served 60 years ago, from the children now wow. of the parents that we worked with. Gosh, it's amazing! Isn't that amazing? The gra gratitude you have for what was a, I mean, a very unique upbringing yeah. and the story yeah. of, of finding your family at yeah. the age of 50. So let me tell you a little bit about Marilyn. Maybe she can tell some of it herself. But <laughs> at any rate, Marilyn and I met. Uh, she was uh, then a, a graduate. She had just graduated in January, and we married in February. And then we took off to New York. We went. Our first home was a 13-room old house that still had gas jets sticking out of the wall, but no, the lights were all taken off, just they, they were capped off. Uh, and the cellar was like... <laughs> a dungeon. <laughs> what was it? Like a dungeon. <laughs> yeah, it was like a dungeon. She was sometimes a little afraid to go down there. But anyway, we had this 13-room house. And uh, Marilyn uh, had to suddenly get used to not having her family. She uh, was at home all these years with two sisters and her parents and a wonderful family. And suddenly she's thrust into this uh, world of the church and the parsonage. And uh, we had no furniture. We moved into a 13-room house. All we had were our dishes. <laughs> and we did have some uh, graduation money. We were able to buy uh, a bed, bedroom set and a kitchen set. And then people in the church started giving us things that we could put in the dining room and the living room couch and so forth we borrowed. And then when we were able to replace them, why, uh, that's what we did, and then give them back to the... So it was that kind of community. The first day we got there, uh, we got there a little early, and we went over to just see the parsonage. And there were a group of women working in it. They were cleaning windows and dusting and fixing the house all up for the new pastor. And uh, they said, whoa, welcome, you're here, you're here. It's wonderful. And uh, when is your furniture coming? And I looked in this big, huge dining room, and there were three big boxes. I said, you know, I think it's here. <laughs> so anyway, we had, the, we had the pleasure of starting from the bottom up, and uh, it was a great ride. 
Uh, she learned how to kind of get along with uh, some loneliness because uh, I was busy. I had two churches mm-hmm. and one in the country, a dairy farm uh, church and one in the small town. And uh, they both demanded a lot of time. So there were times that she was uh, lonely, and then she began to get acquainted with people. And I got and a teaching job. What? I got a teaching job. She got job. a teaching job. First time she uh, subbed in the high school, they, a teacher came out and saw her in the hall and said, get back in your class. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> she was a young girl and looked, and looked really young. But anyway, we, we got along wonderfully with that church, and we, put us, we would have stayed there a little longer. We were there about three and a half years, not quite four. And I got an, uh, a call from a minister in Rochester in a big church, uh, 3,000 members. And uh, uh, he wanted me to come and interview. Uh, I said, well, uh, you know, I don't know. We haven't been here at Attica very long. Well, would you just come and talk to our church council? Now, in Attica, we had a church council of about six or seven people and the same in the country church. Uh, I go to this church and there's a a church council of 36 people sitting in this uh, lounge room and uh, sitting in a big circle. And they put my chair in there and uh, asked me about things. And the reason they were interested in me was I was chairman of the Board of Christian Education for West New York Senate at that time. And I was, Marilyn and I were both involved in camping she was teaching, but we also did summer camps in the summer and uh, a place called Dunkirk, New York on Lake Erie. And so we were kind of getting into, the, into things and being very, becoming very active. We had a wonderful minister's group uh, that taught us a lot uh, about first ministry. And uh, a wonderful group. We would go and sometimes spend a weekend uh, up until Saturday night and then get back to church <laughs> on Sunday morning and, uh, with this group of uh, five or six pastors yeah. and their wives. It was oh, just another preparation. Yeah. I kept looking at, at my life. It's all been preparation uh, to do the things that we've been able to do. I don't know how it happened, but anyway. So uh, Marilyn was teaching and uh, uh, we were in this uh, uh, church and, and doing this camping stuff. And I'm in this council meeting and finally, uh, after a bunch of questions, the uh, president of the council said, uh, well, folks, uh, now Reverend Norton has to drive back to Attica. Uh, we, ought to, we ought to let him go. Uh, I would take one more question. And um, there's a lady sitting across from me, and she's got a mink stole on and alligator shoes and shiny fingers. And she <laughs> says, uh, Reverend Norton, is it true what we've been hearing in West New York Synod? And I started thinking, oh, my gosh, my past is going to catch up with me <laughs> from something. And she said, is it true uh, that you are known in many circles as knobby knees? <laughs> I, <laughs> the council fell off the chair. <laughs> I mean, I, there's an unexpected question. <laughs> I said, as a matter of fact, it's true. <laughs> Uh, I don't know that I have knobby knees, but the kids all at camp thought so because we were short, and, you know. So they would even write songs about my knees. It must have been bad. <laughs> but Marilyn and I got to enjoy directing youth camps, and we've directed uh, over 100 uh, in our ministries. Right. And um, in every place we've been. 
Yeah, we and, started with age group camps. Yeah, we started with age groups, and we each did one each year, and uh, we'd kind of help each other sometimes. And They went on to family camps and yeah. then senior camps. Yeah, and then uh, in Rochester, one of the things they wanted me to do was to do a lot in camping because that church was very interested in church camp, and we had a big one that we could handle 200 people in that camp and um, all little cabins and really mm-hmm. an ideal idealistic place it was kind of a, another honeymoon yeah. <laughs> for us and uh, so anyway uh, uh, she kind of really got into the swing of, of church but she was smart enough to, uh, and we had, we had a woman who uh, we knew very well uh, out in St. Joseph who had been a pastor's wife and she said to Marilyn Marilyn whatever else you do in your life do never never become president of the women's fellowship <laughs> a good advice. Yeah. Very good advice. Don't yeah. get don't get in charge of things. Don't get in charge of anything. Oh, that's good. It's good to hear that. <laughs> Work on anything. So but, I, I did a preschool at St. John's Church. Uh-huh. Yeah, she, that's what she ended up doing when we got to St. Jo, uh, to uh, Chesterfield. She started a preschool program. It's still going now. Oh wow! Uh, and that would be forty years. Yeah. Wow! Wow! Uh, and, and it's going better than ever. Well, I, I want to ask you guys. Yeah. I mean, married 63 years. That's, and clearly very happy, uh, you know. I tell tell those of us who, you know, I'm, uh, what, eight years in. Uh, Pete here is a single gentleman. What's, 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 what, what's some advice? Well, we support each other. I think that's. Uh, in a, a lot of ways. And, um. Uh, we care about the things that are important to each of us. Uh, we try to meet each other's needs. We we don't always even sometimes we don't always know them, but uh, when we do, we try to reach out and do something about that. And uh, besides which, she's a wonderful companion. Uh, Likewise. Yeah, uh, and I mean we just we kind of meshed. We we were. We're, well, um, uh, my uh, one of my families up in Buffalo says that God brought us together, because here I was, 32. I was ready to go out into a church mm-hmm. the next year, and they always say that it's dangerous for a, a church for a pastor to be single in the church because uh, you get uh, involved with some of the church women, and uh, then yeah. other people get angry, and so so it's better if you got. A, a wife to go along and I up up to the middle of my um, second year I had no idea uh, about being married but I I somehow had the feeling I would be <laughs> when I was ready to go yeah. and there, there she it was there we, she we was. met and uh, it was intended to be I think and and she has gone along with so many things that I think a, a number of women would be in uh, uh, would be uh, angry about uh, she really did a lot about bringing up the kids mm-hmm. uh, because I was busy in the churches I was in. We were involved in so many things. Uh, when we were in Chesterfield, that was uh, the epitome of, of our ministry. Uh, in Chesterfield, uh, we found a church that was coming out of being a rural church into a suburban setting. And so the church grew from about 300 to over 700 members while we were there. And um, 
I got involved in some community things. Uh, one of the th- one of the organizations I belonged to was the Lions Club. So one day we were sitting in the Lions. I'm sitting in the Lions Club, and we were getting ready to divide up Christmas tree money, which we all did with charity, mm-hmm. all the charities. And one of the fellows in the group who was a member of my church said, uh, uh, well, I think we ought to give $6,000 to the American Legion where we had one ballpark on Shetler Road. And uh, uh, we need to do something about some lockers in that uh, uh, room. And I suddenly said, and I don't even know where it came from because I, I can't say I was thinking about it. But suddenly I popped up and said, uh, well, wait a minute. We've got one field here and a little field at the end of it for the children. But we've got 2,500 kids out here that want to play baseball. Shouldn't we be putting our money somewhere else and maybe thinking about some new fields somewhere? So we started an organization and we uh, got uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the Catholic Church, our church, and uh, the Lions Club uh, formed a little corporation. And if you ever drive out that uh, Highway 40 and you get out near the bridge, you'll see all those lights now. Well, that was you? I mean, well, I know you won't say that was you, but just, that was that was It important. wasn't just me, right? That's, right. that's the result of what oh we did. Oh, my gosh. But leading up to it was a lot of work. But we had some good people. We had a lawyer who became our lawyer eventually, and we went to the bank. We had uh, Tom Shaw approached us and said, uh, I've got some land. If you really want to get going on, on this, you've you got to have some land and uh, get some collateral. And so we said, well, that would be fine. He said, i got 60 acres down there in the bottom. I'll sell you. So we went to the bank, and the bank said, Uh, what's your collateral Mm -hmm. and our lawyer said it's us (laughs) (laughs) and uh, we're going to make this thing work so we started having flea markets and we had hikes i pulled pulled christopher's wagon one time on a 20 mile hike and the next morning i was walking up the aisle (laughs) uh, half tipped over (laughs) but uh, we had a lot of fun in what we did along the way it wasn't all just hard work there were there were some sad times but uh the good times outweighed it every time and so working with this group um Suddenly, uh, I found myself labeled as the business person of the year in Chesterfield, which, I mean, look at Chesterfield. Yeah. They got all these business yeah. people yeah. out there, and they picked me. <laughs> I said, folks, you got to be digging deep in, the, <laughs> in that barrel. But anyway, they gave me an award. Uh. And then uh, we kept working on this, and finally Tom Shaw came back one day. We had bought that ground for $3,000 an acre. We bought 60 acres. So uh, we're working hard to raise this money, and uh, he sees that we're really uh, serious about it. And he says, uh, you know, folks, I need, I need some of that ground back. Uh, I'd like to buy back 30 acres, and I'll pay you $6,000 an acre. Paid off our ground. Oh, my God. I mean, you know, excuse me, it's things like that that uh, are so amazing that happened. And then when, of course, uh, we got some fields going, uh, we had the the, uh, Catholic Church, Ascension Church's Athletic Association was really big. And, in fact, it was so big they had to divide it. 
they sent some of the uh, people from there out to St. Albans, mm. uh, out in Wildwood now. And uh, they were not, they were suddenly not in the thing that they had been working on. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. they included their athletic association as well. Well, the only thing that we didn't like about what finally happened was we wanted the kids to be able to play ball and we wanted kids to be able to have soccer. So we built soccer fields and ball fields, and um, then the, the uh, incorporation of Chesterfield came along. And we had already left St. John's, but the uh, city council called me back and said, tell us how you got this going, and we're going to put some money into this and, and make some uh, a real uh, field to be proud of. And now they've got 12 fields wow. out there, and I think about the same number of soccer fields and uh, it's quite quite an organization. Wow, what a story! So, you, I had no idea. Who knows? Yeah. yeah, I mean, just that that you know, I mean, that well, decision that you made that shouldn't we be putting money into just you know? one? Yeah. Well, and now it was only one other fellow who stuck up for me. <laughs> <laughs> Bob Stemmy's dad. Uh, oh, that's and, incredible. Uh, he said, "Yeah." He said, "You know, I really think we ought to do something like this." Well, the one thing we didn't want was a ball uh, playing ball on Sunday mornings that would involve. Uh, the kids from churches and they said no we will we'll never do that mm -hmm. well then schnook's market opened on sundays and then deerberg's opened on sundays and the ball was started and you couldn't stop it yeah and uh what one ended up was uh we have to have fields to practice you know we we've got to keep these right. things open so now they have it um you know, They've got full quite time. a setup. Oh, full my time. goodness, yeah. I mean, it's, it's So, it's Marilyn was always a big part of that, too. She was an organizer. She could get things together. I we put on golf tournaments. Market, though. Yeah, that's that's market. another thing I want to talk about is our golf tournaments. Oh. We, we raised a lot of money uh, playing golf. And uh, we did that by putting on the tournaments and, and raising money. So, the uh, one of the first ones we put on was for... Uh, a deaconess hospital, I think. Uh, they were trying to raise five million dollars, and so we put on a tournament. We raised, uh, we had a good one that one, 150,000. We wow. raised. Then we um, uh, started having uh, tournaments for our camp uh, program, Camp Moval, and Marilyn would organize the auctions. And she would call the churches and say, we need a basket, and, uh, you know, will you folks uh, get one for us, and so forth. One time we had over 100 baskets, and they were all in our house. And I said to folks, you know, I have to go out into my car if I want to sit. <laughs> <laughs> baskets everywhere. But, I mean, she, she was just a genius yeah. at getting a hold of people. She's organized. She knows how to, how to do things. She sits down, and she writes cards. Every day she's sending a card to somebody, and uh, she's the original card lady. <laughs> I think she's sent out uh, over, well over 100 Christmas cards already and uh, this year, and she writes to all the shut-ins to people who are in need. She writes to old friends. She's constantly... Keeping down. Sitting down keeping, and doing keeping that. Keeping in touch. Uh, yeah, keeping in touch. Uh, and, and she just felt like this was something that helped our ministry yeah. together. Uh, we both sang in the choir. I would occasionally sing solos. And of course, I was up in front, and she was in the side in front. Uh, the choir was on the side. 
and our kids, we would have them sit in the front row where we could watch them, mm-hmm. <laughs> keep an eye on them. <laughs> and once in a while, when I would sing a solo, I would start to sing, and all the five kids together would all put their hands over their ears. <laughs> but we, we just had, we had a lot of wonderful times. We bought a trailer and took some trips, uh, summer trips, and uh, visited with people. Uh, ran out of gas a few times. We blew a, a, a belt on a fan belt one time. And, you know, it, it was just all things yeah. that part of real life. Yeah. And that's what I've loved, that it's real life and it's, it's sustaining. Uh, you know, it's there. I would never walk away from it what under any circumstance because it fulfilled something I missed in the beginning. beginning yeah. uh, one more quick story. Story. I, I keep coming up with these stories, but tell your stories. Uh, You're the best storyteller ever. Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> he's, but a good anyway, he's a good storyteller. <laughs> when I was when I was still living with the Schindelbecks, I was 15. They were getting ready to go make a trip to New York City, and uh, everybody was all excited. Oh, New York City! Yeah. Everybody's going to New York City. And came the time to go. I was moved out of the foster home to another home temporarily because they couldn't take me and I was wounded I was that really that really bothered me something fierce then I went in the Navy and go to New York uh, several times uh, one time I, I was well when I was called back in I went back to New York and I was there for six weeks mm. before they finally I demanded they put me on a ship <laughs> <laughs> well uh, you know it's just the way things were but so anyway all this was that little knot in the back of my head still bothered me and uh, so when we were when we were working with Randy and this thing about us going out to California for four weeks and it was his turn to take a two-week vacation with us uh, Dick was saying you can't take him he's only uh, you you know you're gonna be gone four weeks he can only take two I said well we're not gonna leave him I said, if he's, uh, if he's kind of a visiting part of our family and he's got two weeks, we're going to take him. And then if you have to have him back, you come get him. But we're not going to leave him. And that little knot in the back of my head was telling me you can't do that because you'll just... I mean, the other kids were so excited about going. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, as a result of that trip, he got uh, some long talks with Marilyn and while I was sleeping in the back... Uh, of the station wagon mm-hmm. and she was driving yeah. and I remember one night waking up and they, these two, those two were in a great big conversation and finally we get back home and he says uh, well Mr. Norton before I go back to the children's home could I talk with the other kids first and I said yeah what do you want to talk about he said well I can't tell you I said okay <laughs> so we went in the kitchen pretty soon he comes out in the kitchen and he says I've talked it over with the other kids and they want you to adopt me yeah. Well, see, that's how that came about. Oh, my gosh. It was uh, an accident, but there was preparation for it. Yeah. Tell me that preparation isn't an important part of my life. I mean, I, I, I don't know. And I think in my preaching, I often used stories that brought that tried to bring uh, the Bible alive. I, I try to have people look, when I'm telling a, a Bible story, look at the people that we're talking about in this Bible. Let's say it's the Good, the good Samaritan. 
are you the priest who walked by or are you the uh, the the Jewish leader who walked by or are you the good Samaritan who picked him up or are you the father mm -hmm. in heaven the same with the prodigal son I want people when I'm preaching to look at that and now in the prodigal son am I the one who left the family and not very good circumstances or am I the one who stayed home and got jealous or am I the father in heaven who was open enough to let people go mm. uh, you know so anyway that's kind of been my style of preaching trying to find ways to make stories relevant mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that leads me to another story uh, I was um, out playing golf one time I told this story in church I was playing golf one time I was going to play with a doctor and I got out to the course and there was a note waiting for me sorry an, a, a, an emergency surgery came up I have to be here but please go out and play anyway so uh, the caddy master says uh, there's a guy teeing off on the front first tee why don't you go out and join him and the two of you can play together you might enjoy that better than playing alone and then come back in and have lunch on the doctor he wants you to do that so we start off and the guy takes his first swing and out came language I hadn't heard since I was in the Navy. <laughs> really uh, pretty despicable. Well, anyway, I thought I can either put up with this or I could walk away or whatever. And I thought I'm going to put up with it and just uh, not say anything. Pretty soon we get out to the third hole and he walks up to me and puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Carl, what did you say you do for a living? I said, well, uh, I didn't say. He said, yeah, well, what do you do? So I told him, I said, well, you might say that I'm a cobbler. He says, a cobbler? I said, yeah, a saver of souls and a few heels. <laughs> he says, a goddamn minister, and he walked off the course. No way. He walked off the course. So well, then I went by myself, and I had his ball. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I mean, you know, I could tell that story in church in a way that people would understand, you know, we've done that. We get on an airplane or something or on a train or in a bus or with other people, and suddenly somebody says, a minister's here. Got to watch yeah. our language. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, you know, if you have to watch your language when a pastor's here, maybe you should watch it when, you're, when he's not here because God is still with us, you know. Anyway, so that's my short little story about that. Yeah, but uh, golf, we, we just had tournaments, and I had one last summer for my 93rd birthday. We had 50 people come and play. We had a big birthday cake. We had a women's fellowship from one of our churches came and served us lunch. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of life we've yeah, had. Why yeah. wouldn't it be good? Oh, it's great. Uh, we've, yeah. we've just enjoyed ourselves. But you're, so, you're such quality people. I mean, I think some of this is the byproduct of the way you carry yourselves. I mean, I, I understand you're talking about good fortune and preparation. Yeah. And, of course, that's played a role. But, yeah. you know, I can see it. I'm sure Pete can see it. I mean, you're just fine people who are thinking of other people yeah. to, to, to the core, not just saying it, but raising. Yeah. We've been very fortunate. Um, I think altogether we probably had, uh, with five, we've had 15 mm -hmm. people stay with us at one time. We took care of some, uh, uh, was it uh, the uh, three pregnant women came and stayed with us one time? Well, we yeah, we were in, working in with... 
a late a young girls that were expecting babies that, that yeah. were not married and so and they were trying to decide whether to have it or not mm. i guess they were thinking about it. adoption and, and you know whether we that incur- was what they wanted them to adopt mm-hmm. our kids were little then yeah. uh and then uh, we had other kids come uh, some of them were from our church one girl came uh, when we were still in our first church um, mary bry uh, mary mm-hmm. uh father had committed suicide the well, town was such the town was such a kind of town that they said we're not going to call this suicide because they won't get any insurance there were five children in the family uh, so yeah. wow. they wanted I mean, the children to think get about that. a town does that wow so uh they got the insurance money the girls uh the other girls went to live in rochester but mary was in her last year in high school she was president of the class so she came to us and said, asked if she could live with us. I got to know her through the the girls the Girl Scout troop that we were working yeah. in. I was the leader, and she was one of my assistants. Yeah. And so her friends encouraged her to talk to us about staying with us so she could stay in town. Gosh. She worked it out fine. Just yeah. incredible. So, so we Mary still, stayed with us for a year, and she's been our friend ever since. <laughs> wow. Uh, in fact, she came and visited with us just this fall yeah. on, on their way to Arizona. And we stayed with them last year when my doctor took us to uh, Long Island to marry their son. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that was a wonderful trip. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and his, he drove me and his wife drove Marilyn all the way and yeah. all the way back. How about that? Beginning to realize those long trips are a little tougher for us. A little us. tougher, yeah. I, yeah. I can't imagine doing but that. They but were, they were great. And... Uh, you know, we got into so many things. I, I was also asked one time by a member of our church if I would help them with their, uh, she was in a drug abuse program because she had a son who was just, uh, he, he burned his brain out. Uh, it was really a shame. He lived right behind us. We could hear the, the loud music that he would play at night and uh, he had drums and so forth. Well, anyway, she, she was working with a drug abuse program trying to help her son and they were trying to raise some money so she said can you help us raise some money so i said well i'll try i'll I'll try so i got a group of people that i i knew through the chamber and through uh the other things that we had done the ball fields i had the two dearberg brothers um my lawyer a couple of bankers and others and i invited them to a breakfast at the double tree hotel (laughs) And we're sitting there, and I, I have a bad habit of taking sugar. I take two, mm-hmm. and I'll shake it so it goes down so when I open it, it doesn't spill all right. over. So one of those slipped out of my hand and did a flip right down into Bob Deerberg's cup of coffee. <laughs> and he turns to me, he says, Reverend, you got any other tricks <laughs> up your sleeve? I said, no, I don't think so. Because oh, I fished out my sugar. <laughs> but anyway, uh, he also leaned over to me, and he said, um, uh, Carl, uh, you you realize we we don't give money. Uh-huh. I said, well, what what do you do? Uh-huh. He said, well, we'll we'll figure out something. Uh-huh. So they they got together and the chamber then put on a program. They had an auction. I mean, it was a a wing dinger, uh-huh. and they raised thirty five thousand dollars in one night uh, in this auction for this little drug abuse program. And they were able then to expand, and uh, uh, that program stayed, that auction stayed for, I guess, almost 20 years. I don't know that they're still doing it now because the chamber has changed leadership, 
and uh, even one of our one of our church girls is running it now. But uh, uh, at any rate, uh, they kept raising money for these drug. And there was, the story that I told these people, I said, look. Uh, you may not see drug abuse as a problem, but you've got people in your businesses that have to take time off or don't don't make their or don't work up to speed in their in their work. Uh, we ought to all be concerned about these people and and trying to find ways to help them. And so that's why that program got started mm-hmm. and it continued after we left. Uh, one other time as we were leaving, uh, the city council gave us uh, a Chesterfield um, a Citizen of the Year award. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, we didn't deserve it. We got it. <laughs> yes, we, we, did. we took it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we took it, but we just had uh, we had a great time. I mean, who we never expected to be able to do the things that we did, and to have the uh, relationships with people that we've had mm-hmm. and our family as it's grown has been uh, just a wonderful family uh, I'll tell you about how adoption was received in this little story when Marilyn uh, discovered uh, she was going to have a baby she got the kids on the couch all four of them said now look it looks like we're going to have a baby but I want to tell you I don't want any any word of this to anyone until I know for sure we're going to have this baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Mom, our lips are sealed, especially over at church. Don't tell anybody. Uh, no. So two weeks later, Jimmy, who's nine years old, uh, you know Jim? Uh, uh, Jim Norton? Not sure. Uh, he see, he seemed to know who you were. Okay. I thought maybe you had okay. met him. Uh, that's our son, Jim. Okay. That's well, Sam's anyways. father. Okay, all right. Yeah. Jim um, goes over to church and he meets a, a quilter, and she corners him and says, is it true, Jim, what we're hearing, that there's going to be a baby over at your house? He said, well, I knew I couldn't lie about it. So he said, uh, uh, yes, ma'am, we've decided to, uh, uh, economize. We've decided to economize this year. We're going to have one instead of buying one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice answer. Nine. <laughs> pretty good answer. Yeah. He was pretty smart. He could come up with uh, stuff. But, you know, growing, uh, watching the kids grow up and in different ways, uh, you know, they, they all have their own path, which is good. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. They're supposed to have their own life. And uh, we've tried to help them to do that and uh, to try to make the right decisions. It hasn't always been easy. Uh, they do the best they can, and we still have a, a good family, well, wonderful it, family. And in fact, you got your phone. I want to show them our new grandson, uh, our son Kit. Now, the the natural son is a uh, principal in the uh, Lindbergh School District okay. at two schools. Okay, he's at Crestwood and uh, uh, Sappington. And anyway, they just adopted a baby. Oh, his wow. wife was adopted by a pastor. Wow. And his wife down in Marshall, Missouri. She's a teacher. And uh, so they've adopted this little baby uh, in Indianapolis. Okay. <laughs> and uh, he's a cutie. <laughs> what are you having so much trouble? Well, I'm just not having too much trouble. Just oh, just looking for a good one. <laughs> I'm They're all good. For... Uh, Jim says the uh, the kid well, doesn't take a bad picture. Yeah, is that right? Very photogenic, huh? <laughs> Very photogenic. Yeah. Oops. Let's see what we got going Whoa, on here. There. there he is. Oh, what a cute. This is Sam. Yeah, I met Sam and, here today. And uh, his brother Jack. 
and our son Kit, oh, and that's their that? little baby. How about that? And that's and Remy's brother. Whoops, Rowan. Oh, he does. He does. <laughs> He's always looking yeah. at the camera and smiling. Yeah, he does. He always. <laughs> he always smiles. Oh, nine months. You want to see this? Yeah, Pete, Pete take a look. look at it. But anyway, so uh, you know, we we've never made a lot of money in life. But we've met some wonderful people, mm -hmm. and it harkens back to my childhood. Uh, one of the persons that was very influential to me was not only my pastor, but my counselor. I was required by the Children's Aid Society to uh, meet uh, once a month with a counselor. His name was uh, W.E. Ward, and he was uh, just a, a gem of a guy. Uh, very cultured, very well educated. Uh, one thing he had was long white eyelash eye, eyebrows, mm -hmm. and sometimes when he was trying to think of something, he would pull on this. <laughs> I remember this. And but anyway, he was the kind of person uh, who, in counseling me, would start out by saying, "What are you reading? Uh, what good books are you looking at?" Uh, I'd say, well, I was reading a detective. No, 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 no. I don't want to hear that. Uh, what, what are you reading that's worthwhile? Uh, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then if I didn't come up with one, he'd introduce me to a book mm -hmm. so that I, I kind of became a reader. And I wanted to please him, so I, I would work at it. And um, uh, other times he would say, uh, uh, Carlton, you know, I've got, a, I've got a young man I'm working with that I have a little problem with, and maybe uh, you're about his age, maybe you could help me. And he would start describing the problem, and I would suddenly say, uh-huh, the light's dawning, he's talking about me. <laughs> Which was his way of, of doing it. It was a nice way to kind of get into, okay, you got a problem, let's see what we can do about this. Mm -hmm. How can you how can you change so that this isn't a problem yeah, for you anymore? Yeah. So I mean, he was so helpful to me, and then the pastor being a big help, and the families were not they didn't interfere in that at all, uh, and in many ways they were helpful too. But I was getting all this help and not realizing yeah, it at the time. Yeah. But looking back on it, I say, wow, Look I had an education. Yeah, I really had an education that uh, didn't come from school, sure. and uh, just. Things that people who showed care. I had a, a guy who would welcome us in church. I'd go to church sometimes by myself because uh, families weren't always that churchy. But uh, I would go because I knew I was going to be welcome. And as Mr. Freeman would stand at the top of the stairs at this little church we went to, and he'd say, Carl, you're here this morning. You know, God's in there waiting for you. Now get in there. And he'd slap me on the bottom and get you going. And, you know, it just made you feel good. Uh, you weren't wandering into some dark place, you know. And, uh, I mean, it, it kind of led me, I'm sure, into the church. That was maybe God calling me all along. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. Whatever it is, I think we've had, uh, we've been blessed uh, by being able to help a lot of people. I, I don't even know sometimes whether I've helped them or not, but we get letters oh, I to show that, um, that. Uh, we've meant something that we didn't even, weren't even aware of. I do. Uh, I'll tell you one more cute story about uh, Tom Shaw. 
Well, he is really like he's like on. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's on. He's uh, constantly on. I was looking, taking great pictures. <laughs> I was at a, a church when I was, when I left uh, Chesterfield. I started doing interim ministry, which was uh, serve a church for two years. Okay. Until they found a new pastor. Okay. Yeah. So I did twelve of those until I just retired uh, a month ago. My last one was over across the river in St. Charles, and each one we'd had to get up on Sunday morning, we'd drive 40, 50 miles to uh-huh. some church and serve it, and then uh, during the week if they had sickness, or Maryland would write to all the shut-ins, and just, uh, you know, yeah. we just kept, and, and those people still keep in touch with us. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, so wherever we go, we, uh, we just meet up with a lot of friends. So anyway, I was at this church, uh, a new church start, and they were looking for some property. So I thought, oh, I'll call Tom Shaw, see if Tom, yeah. Tom can help us. Well, I had married Tom to his wife, uh-huh. and I called him, and I said, <laughs> yeah, I had to clear that up. Um, that has to be clarified. Yeah, just, just on the off chance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, I called him, and I said, uh, Tom, you know, I've been going through my files, and I find that uh, the marriage ceremony I did for you five years ago has expired. He dropped the phone and he says, hey, Pat, we're not married anymore. <laughs> I said, wait a minute, yes, you are. <laughs> so I was asking him for some help with property uh, and uh, it turned out some people in the church gave us property. Uh, and uh, uh, one thing or another, it never panned out because the denomination uh, took some steps that uh, foiled it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, they didn't intend to do it, but it, they just, they didn't listen to people who, yeah. who were there and who knew what was going on. So well, it has been an incredible life of, of service and your gratitude. And I put it, I put it this way. I, I saw again at Christmas, it's a wonderful life, yeah. Jimmy Stewart. And I, I, I do say this to myself. Um, what would life have been like without me? Now, uh, me, I mean, th- that's not the important part of it, but I look back at the people that have found some joy with me, my mother, certainly, the new family that I found when I was 50, Marilyn, um, you know, we wouldn't have met, uh, the children that we've helped, all the people that in the churches that we've tried to help over the years. And I have to say, it's it's been a wonderful life. Yeah. Uh, how can you look at it any other way? And uh, we don't have any money. That's okay. Uh, we're getting along. We live in our son Kit's house. Uh, that's fine. We're selling our house in Raintree that's going to end up this month. We're going to sign off on it. And uh, so, uh, you know, God has been wonderful to us and to, for us, for each other. Yeah. Because we um, we bounce off on each other and uh, we see things sometimes that the other one doesn't see and we're able to kind of look at each other and say uh, uh, maybe this would help kind of thing. Marilyn, Carl, this yeah. has been incredible. What a storyteller yeah. and what a story Yes, I couldn't do it isn't. without her. When I retired at St. John's, I sang a song for, to her and it was called You, you Are the Wings Beneath My Wings. Yeah. The wind. I sang the wind it to 400 it? people. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And her. Uh, yeah, Marilyn was paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Thank, Thank you. you so much for coming in and telling your stories. This has been well, incredible. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm sorry to take up all your no, time. No, this is this part of the deal. That's the deal. We come in here and we hear stories, but you're able to tell these stories from, We you didn't know, talk about your golf. Well, you don't want to hear about my golf. It's a, <laughs> if you were a one handicap, me being a six handicap isn't going to excite you. You, know? <laughs> you, you could beat me. Uh, had, well, no, I mean. I, even we, my doctor <laughs> has a, even our doctor has a sense of humor. He said to me one time he said uh uh well i got good news and bad news about your eyes i said what do you want to hear first i said well tell me the bad news well he says you can't see as well as you used to so well, what's the good news he said now you can hit the ball out of sight <laughs> and that way now you're hitting the ball further you can't see where it's right. going call yeah. Marilyn. thank you so very much well thank you this nice has been to a meet you. wonderful to meet you M- wonderful to meet you and, and your uh, stories and your recollection you both look incredible well, by the way i mean i lost my hair at 18 and look at you I mean, what's going on? What's the secret? Paste it on. <laughs> I need to get that then. Thank you guys so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. It, thank you. It's good to meet you. Great to meet you. So there it is. Carlton Norton, his wife, Marilyn. An interview that while I was conducting it, while Carlton and Marilyn were telling their story, uh, we thought it was for their family members and their family members only and whoever they want to share it with. Um, and then... We had circumstances that led to me saying, you know what? A lot of people want to hear this story that I kind of recounted on the TMA fan page on Facebook. And so I'll go ahead and and see if Carlton would be comfortable with this being public. And he said he would be honored to do so. And so now you have just heard what is an absolutely incredible life story. Uh, Gangster Pete, uh, your reaction on the Carlton Norton, Marilyn Norton story. This is exactly what I had in mind when you started doing this. It was like part history lesson, part life lesson. Yeah. And I mean, I was I was into it the whole way through. And he's such a good storyteller. Yeah. It just keeps you on the edge of your seat. Yeah, you have people like that. You made reference to Kelly Chase at the outset, who is a storyteller, you know, of you know, black belt caliber. Um, and Carlton has that ability. And it was it was funny um, after I posted on the TMA fan page. I guess the pictures of us um, and also the story. Uh, a few people knew him. I guess he was their pastor, um, and so they knew him and just thought the world of him and uh, and had some knowledge of some elements of the story. But you know, I mean, take your. I mean, if you just stop with the childhood and that he lived with as many families as he did, that's incredible. If you stop with the golf career that you were bouncing around from house to house and then became a caddy just to get out and then taught yourself the game to get to the point of a one handicap. And I true, and I don't say this, I'm being serious when I say it. I think there's a legitimate chance. Now the man's going to be 94 in July. I think it's live. He could beat me now. I really get that sense. And I'm not saying that. I really think it's possible. I don't want to have the match because I think it could happen and it would really be, I'd have to look in the mirror about my game, but I get the sense that he, he, he doesn't look like, does he look like he's, he doesn't look like he's going to be 94 in six no, months, you know? Not at all. Uh, I mean, he, and his wife. Uh, he definitely you know. doesn't sound like it. No. And his memory. I mean, he's recounting, Sharp. you know, um, so you could stop it right there. Then he goes into World War II and his experiences in World War II. You could stop it right there. Then he comes back to New York, um, goes into the Korean War, goes on leave, and while on leave is asked to caddy, he's like, oh, I'm kind of, you know, taking my time here. 
And they say, well, you'd be caddying for Bob Hope. And now he's caddying for Bob Hope. Um, and, and then when he meets Marilyn, then it becomes like the whole next chapter of the book, which is sure they had in it. And, and, and when the notes I have, and I'm looking at the notes from the interview, now I know the story, but I just have the notes. I just, I did not realize that they took in all of these kids with the exception of, of one, uh, who it seems like a number of people are familiar with as well. Um, so, you know, you have a number of, of children who they took in, adopted, um, one of their own biologically, and then it also said a number of others we cared for along the way. And my understanding is it was about 10 in addition to, I mean, it's just, you know, that's, that's superhero stuff there. And, you know, also, you know, he's a pastor. Um, his role in the, the ball fields in Chesterfield which I would imagine if you're in the St. Louis area, you are familiar with and how that came to pass. And I'm probably leaving things out, by the way, because I'm doing this uh, from memory from five or six days ago. Um, just, you know, a man who who walks the walk, talks the talk, and, and backs it up and, and just has lived a life that you just go. I mean, it, it's it's the kind of life you could make into a movie. It, it, it truly is. Um and just, just an impressive person. It's one of those things where, you know, and I, I use the word over and over again when it, uh, when this, when this, you know, this topic of doing these interviews with family members, which isn't really what we're intending it to limit it to. Um, Pete and I were talking about, like, if, if we were doing this back in June of 2019, how many people, friends or families or fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, whatever, we would have wanted to offer to come in and tell the story of, you know, their, their love of the St. Louis blues and also their experience over the two months leading up to that moment where the blues and Alex Petrangelo lifts that Stanley cup and the parade and the emotions and thinking about the people who've passed, but taught them the love of the game. You know, I've, I've had people say, I'd like to, to come in and tell the story of our wedding things that, you know, I would love to do that if I could go back to 2011 and have my wife come in and we can just remember things that we've forgotten since then or the birth of a child. I actually typed it out within a week of, of the birth of our son, so I would always have it. Um, but you think of those things as this goes on. And all I've had um, a mom uh, family say that they would love to do something for their child when uh, he goes off to college. So there's all these elements. At this point, people think of, um, you know, family members and parents and grandparents. But like I said, my brothers and sister and I did this for my parents to, uh, to let them hear the things that, you know, maybe they didn't know we thought. The things that you say at a eulogy, really, that's, that's, that's what it, that's, and I always, and I always, and it was a conscious thought process, you know, um, I thought I, it's, it's, I don't know what the right word for it is. Unfortunate seems too light. Tragic seems too dark. Um, but that the best things are said about people when they're gone. And I wanted to make sure for my brother, Danny and my brother, Kevin and my sister, Mara, that our parents would hear these things. And so that's why we did it. Um, and in the case of a lot of people who are doing this with their parents and their grandparents, they are thinking, I want to make sure that my son and daughter or my grandson and granddaughter or my great son and great granddaughter will hear how fascinating my mother, father, my grandmother, grandfather, their lives were and their life advice. That's the thing, you know, Pete made reference to that history lessons in some capacity but also life advice. Um, and uh, it always goes back to family. Every one of these 
always goes back to family. So I feel like I'm getting like to, to, to look at the back of the book and the answer key when I listen to these because you get people who have been there and what do they say? And if they'd be like, yeah, I wish I would have drank more and, you know, screwed off more in my 20s, I'd be like, okay, well, then maybe I should take advantage of it while I can. Um, but it always goes back to family. And, um, and so you think, you think through that. You always, and there's also a great amount of gratitude. That, that stands out. There's a great amount of gratitude in these conversations. And a lot uh, seems to focus on the holidays um, where everyone is together, not because of necessarily gifts or anything like that, but because everyone is together. That's, you know, uh, I, I don't know how many more of these are we going to do. Am I going to do thousands of these? Or am I going to do 10 more? I don't know. Um, but every one of them is, is different and unique. And within, within about three to five minutes of each one, I know why the person who reached out to me to do the interview wanted me to talk with the person. Um, it, it, and, there, and it's whatever trait it might be that stands out, a sense of humor, um, a fascinating and or difficult upbringing, um, just a quality person, leader, wise, um, business sense, business acumen, incredible parent. Uh, these these are the things that that you know, just that, that come out. And it's also interesting to me that so often these people will say, yeah, I don't really know. I'm happy to be here. I'm flattered that, you know, so-and-so thought enough of me to record my life story, but I don't really think it's that interesting. And then, you know, an hour, an hour and a half later, you think, you know, they've told their life story. They go, well, I guess there was, I guess there was a lot there. And now it's there for their grandkids uh, and their great grandkids to always have and always hear. So with Carlton Norton and with his wife, Marilyn, um, it was it was kind of a little bit of everything in the sense that you had the history, but you also have someone that I think we all can acknowledge uh, has lived an incredible life. And again, uh, walk the walk, talk the talk, walk the walk. Um, but it gives you an idea of, of, once again, it always goes back to family. His family story, just uh, different than, than most of the family stories. So I'm grateful for Carlton and Marilyn coming in. Uh, grateful that they wanted to share this publicly. And, um, and, and really, from a big step backward perspective, grateful to the people who, you know, and they didn't do it in a way like, you know what, I, it's kind of insulting that you don't want to interview your dad because uh, I'd do anything to interview my dad. It wasn't laid out that way. You know, as they say, you catch more flies with, uh, with honey. Um, it was, you know, I understand your hesitation. You don't want to sit there and cry. You don't want him sitting there and crying, but I would do anything to be able to talk to my dad and, or have a recording of it. And that's what pushed me. And, um, and otherwise I wouldn't have done it seriously. I mean, cause this has been, this has been brought up for a while and I was just like, yeah, I mean, that's not something I'm really looking to do. And then it took another perspective to uh, lead me to do it. And I'm very grateful for that because then it's led to this. Without without that, we don't have this, and um, and it has been it's been eye opening. I, I I told a story on the TMA fan page. You know, I knew Steve Savard and Mike Bush when we were all sports doing sports in the early 2000s, and um, I worked for Steve at KMOV when I was an anchor and reporter, and I knew Mike. And I always thought of Mike as being really competitive with his sports department. He built a hell of a sports department. And then I've had both of them in since then for the podcast. And now they've both become news anchors. And the thing that stands out to me 
from those interviews, which which was not intended. But I noticed with both of them, I guess, I think Mike was the first one to come in. Um, and then I noticed it with Steve as well. And I thought it, it couldn't have been a coincidence. Both of them were much more, um, I guess, aware of the issues with St. Louis and empathetic to the issues of St. Louis because I think, uh, and this is not to say that they weren't before, but in sports, you're in your own little bubble. You know, everything revolves around games. But then when you're reading stories of murder and crime um, and issues with poverty every single night for at least two newscasts per night, Monday through Friday or Sunday through Thursday or whatever the schedule is, you can't help but have your eyes open to it. And running parallel to that, for me, as I sit across from people, as they tell their stories, oftentimes getting emotional, um, it opens my eyes to, you know, that which I guess is kind of obvious, but if, if you're not paying attention, perhaps you miss it, which is, you know, the feeling I have toward my son, the love I have for my son, how my life revolves around my son. And my, and, and my family and everything now is in the best interest of my wife and my son. Um, every person who comes in was looked at that way at one time by their parents, who in most cases are, are no longer with us. And every person who comes in here and tells their story is looked upon that way by their uh, children, their grandchildren. And they look upon those children and grandchildren the same way. And, and therefore their story... I have a responsibility if they come in to help tell that story um, as as best I can by asking questions and, and, and getting out of the way, but thinking of the people who are going to be listening to it. And in 99.9% of the cases, the intent is for these to be, well, in 100% so far, the intent has been for these to be private. In this one exception with Carlton Norton in Maryland, um, we made it public with their permission. But it is... a uh, you know, if, if I have a bad TMA radio show, it's kind of like, all right, well, you know, I've done, I don't even know how many I've done at this point, whatever, thousands. I, I don't like it. I'm not happy. We had a bad, well, I had a bad one yesterday and I'm kind of tilted by it and I, it's my responsibility and I didn't do my job. Um, but I'll have another one the next day. With these, this is one shot and I got to be on. And I want to make sure because it's for these people who care about these people so much that it's, you know, you're kind of entrusted almost like a doctor to, 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 to have this, this, this family heirloom. And, um, and the fact that people entrust us, Pete and myself to, to put these together, uh, it's a, it's a great responsibility and it's a great honor. Carlton Norton and Marilyn Norton, um, opened our eyes and I'm very grateful that they came in and told their story because it is a story that ties together history and also just life lessons. Um, so thank you to Carlton Norton. Thank you to Marilyn Norton. And thank you to those who emailed me uh, to have their parents, grandparents, or in the case we had a younger person come in to, to pay homage to their uh, uh, parents. Um, and really the people who emailed me encouraging me to interview my dad because that, that I'm so glad that I did that. Now I got to interview my mom and I got to interview my wife's parents and I just want to keep doing this for as many people as I can. You know, I've had some friends reach out because it's something that, um, I know means something to people, especially once they have it done and it's the fear of regret, man, I wish I would have it done. I think that's getting people to email me. And then there's the feeling of gratitude. Once you have it, you know, you have it, that can't go anywhere. 
you always have that. Um, so if you are interested, Tim McKernan at InsideSTL.com. Thank you to Gangster Pete. Thank you to Marilyn and Carlton Norton. Thank you to our sponsors, Ryan Kelly, TheHomeLoanExpert.com. Thank you to James Carlton. Thank you to Mark Hanna, Evergreen Wealth Strategies, Johnny Landoff, Chevrolet, Highway 270, and the Washington Elizabeth Exit, online at Landoff.com, Chevy Find New Roads, and Design Air Heating and Cooling, DesignAirService.com, the number one train dealer in the Midwest. I'm Tim McKernan. This has been another edition of the Tim McKernan Show on the Inside STL Podcast Network. Peloton, let's go. This holiday, with the right music and the right motivation from world-class instructors, we're going to pick it up a notch. It's the holiday season. You might just surprise yourself with what you're capable of. Work out to thousands of live and on-demand classes, from running to cycling to yoga. Try Peloton risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. Peloton, motivation that moves you.